Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the INP's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I am fantastic, Darren. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm actually really excited because, well, this week for our 251st episode spectacular, that's the big number that we are really excited to hit. Uh, we are covering a movie that I am very excited to talk about. Uh, one of my own personal favorites, uh, a movie that I, I kind of saw in love as, as a teenager. And because we have a very special guest joining us for this discussion, the wonderful Mr. Joe Griffin. How are you, Joe? Oh, I'm great. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to seeing who this special guest is. Yeah, we we have you on for it's a very special episode. It's it's our it's our hot guy summer, um, kind of uh, season of movies where we 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 have our dreamy guests on. I was about um, to say, is is it a hot guy summer of movies because of the guys in the movies or the guys talking about the movies? It's just a hot guy summer. We're committed to this hot guy summer thing. The um, fact that you have to ask that, Darren, is deeply insulting. <laughs> that, 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 that is very fair. I, I'm sorry. But and I do, by the way, I want to point out to Joe that this is the first time Andrew has mentioned this. This is not a recurring bit, <laughs> just in case you were seeming confused and disoriented. But yes, we will continue our Hawkeye summer into next week's discussion of Catwoman, I am absolutely certain. <laughs> but yes, this week we are talking about Oliver Stone's 1986 movie, Platoon. Uh, which is one of the 100 percenters uh, on the 250. It is a movie that has always been on the list since its inception. Uh, it is a movie that was massively successful on release. It was the third highest grossing movie of 1986. It was also the winner of the Best Picture Oscar and the Best Director Oscar at the following year's award ceremony. This is a big one, a foundational film, arguably one of the most important and influential Vietnam War movies, certainly, but possibly war movies in general that American cinema has produced. And there's a lot to talk about here, but before we do, just to kick it all off, because Joe, you've kind of become our 80s movie guru, because as Andrew points out, we immediately like to label our guests and put them in neat little boxes. So as somebody who has been thus assigned our 80s movie guru tag, how would you consider Platoon? Like, do you we remember the first time you saw it? We put them in boxes and then we pull the flag over the box. And... <laughs> yeah. uh, but the box contains lots of valuable intelligence. It's got maps in there. I think you should just take it with you to your CO immediately. That is what I would do if I found the little box that we put our guests in. Sorry, that's a very dark turn. But Joe. <laughs> Mine <platoon>. was bad. <laughs> it was already <laughs> terrible. I was like, why did I say that? And I was like, oh, good. Darren's saying something Darren's terrible. doubling down. Yeah, yes, yeah. Darren's doubling down on this. But Joe, uh, Platoon, do you remember the first time you saw it, what your reaction to it is, and what your kind of immediate thoughts on it are? Uh, yeah, uh, thanks for that really uncomplicated metaphor, guys. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I actually can't quite pinpoint the exact first viewing, like the time of the year or whatever it was, um, but I, it was actually a huge presence when I was... A kid, and uh, when I was in secondary school, um, it reignited or kicked off a wave of Vietnam movies. I remember, like, um, a friend of mine had a poster of Saigon in his bedroom. Um, I remember playing the Platoon video game, which in yes. retrospect was in kind of bad taste. Um, on the Commodore 64, you'd like, crawl around in the Viet Cong tunnels and shoot them and... Um, fire a flare into the air and like fire upon the enemy when they briefly become illuminated. Um, were there, so, were there any hilarious uh, racist caricatures, or or, uh, or not so much? I I can't definitively say no. Right. Um, 
So it's possible it would. Like, video games are are not known for their sensitivity now, like 34 years later. Um, So take the insensitivity of video games and take 34 or 35 years away from that, and that'll give you an approximation of the kind of stuff we and they were playing in the 80s. But anyway, I'm kind uh, of just imagining Adagio for strings rendered as a MIDI file on the Commodore 64. <laughs> that's kind of my big takeaway from this. But sorry, yeah, I'm Joe. sure that's I'm sure that appeared. Um, so yeah, I remember it as a as a presence. And I actually Oliver Stone was kind of a big deal for me because there's a handful of directors, and he's one of the few contemporary ones, like as in contemporary to when I discovered him. But there's a handful of directors who were a bridge for me from like kid films to more serious fare, like as a teenager. And so when I started really getting into films, like around that, I'm 45. Uh, so around like the late 80s, early 90s, um, I had a real inferior, cultural inferiority complex to the 1970s I why can't film and music be like the 1970s and I discovered like you know the movie brats like um De Palma and Spielberg and even George Lucas like American Graffiti was a big deal um even though he's not seen as a similar type as Scorsese and De Palma and all those um but that era and then at the time Oliver Stone was one of the first like grown-up directors um, who I got into at the time. So it's kind of a big deal. And I remember Platoon being a big deal, cultural deal at the time. I remember my friend's parents going to see it. And this was back when, uh, this is whole can of worms, but this was back when films like Platoon would make over $100 million. And like it was number one for a month in the States. Yeah. Yeah, it, like third was, highest grossing movie of the year. It grossed ahead of like Star Trek four and Karate Kid part two, like in terms of end of year list. And like to, to give an example, I think the previous year, Steven Spielberg's The Color Purple, which is the story of a black woman growing up a generation after slavery starring Whoopi Goldberg, was the fourth highest grossing movie of that year. Um, Like those box office top tens are insane in the best possible way. And it's impossible to imagine that happening today. Yeah, yeah, which is, is I, sorry. I think I, I think a lot of people watch those Oscar movies kind of on home video, like when they're kind of like announced, not on home video, you know, on streaming and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's the thing where it's like the following year, you haven't watched any of these, like you people hadn't sort of watched thing. like The Shape of Water or The Favourite or something like that when yeah. they're out in the cinema, but they're all kind of catching up on them. And, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but the, the difference is that, like, in the in the olden days, it used to be that, like, the movies would perform really well at the box office and then get nominations. Like, the, the go-to example here is Signs of the Lambs, right? Which opened in March. Like, it opened literally a couple of days after the eligibility for the previous Oscars would have closed. And then became a box office phenomenon over the course of a year. And then somehow got a Best Picture nomination and then got got a Best Picture win. And this is kind of similar as well, where... This was such a cultural force that it was undeniable. I like there will be articles in the show notes about the Oscar race. And the Oscar race is one of those Oscar races which is like one of the ones that it always seems to be but rarely turns out to be which is oh yeah, from the moment that the the race opens we know it's going to be platoon. 
because you can look back and you can see like in December 1986, they're like, oh yeah, it's Platoon. Uh, January 1987, it's like, oh, still Platoon. Uh, February, it's like, oh, nominations are announced. It's it's still going to be Platoon. And then March, it's like, oh yeah, it was, it was Platoon. 12 days of Oscars. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, yeah, so I do, I remember it as as a presence. I remember like there was a kid in my class in school did like impressions of Tom Berenger, um, <laughs> which probably doesn't choice. happen in schools that much now. And <laughs> Then, so it's, uh, I remember seeing it all the way through. I was probably about 13 or so. So I think it came out in Ireland in 87. This was yes. back when films, there was like six months gaps between US and European releases. And then it came out on video, like late 87. So I probably saw it around then, like around the age of 12 or 13 or so. Um, but I remember it circulating. It used to be on TV a lot. And I'd seen it a few yeah. times uh, in my teenage years. And it was back when I had both the the time and the hunger to watch films multiple times. And then, weirdly, um, actors in it who had been unknown or had small roles yeah. um, subsequently became famous. So if you watched it again, like in the early to mid-90s, it's like, oh, wow, there is... One of the biggest stars of the era. Tony Todd, Forrest Whitaker, yeah, Johnny Depp. Um, yeah, Willem yeah. Dafoe or um, All of them. the guy from the, yeah. They Live, who I like. Um, oh, Keith David, Keith yeah. Keith David. Just, he's like he was, again, just off the back of like, yeah, They Live and also The Thing and stuff like that. Yeah, phenomenal yeah, yeah. cast. Uh, yeah, and really stacked cast. Um, then the guy who went on to appear in Mad Men, was in it, the guy who played Ducky in Mad yes. Men. John C. McGinley's in there as yeah, well. Yeah, McGinley's like, he was, brilliant in it. Mark uh, uh, Mark Moses. Mark yes, Moses. Yes. Yeah. Uh, baby like, face. I've seen him in so many things. He's in, the, in a lot of television, like kind of Desperate Housewives and things like that. Yeah, yeah he was in my favorite season of Homeland. He played the, the traitor. Yes. Uh, but that's uh, season of Homeland was so great. But anyway, yeah, so I do. I remember, I remember Platoon. And then I actually saw like Full Metal Jacket and Apocalypse Now after Platoon. Um, and... Yeah, it was a it was a big impactful thing, and then Oliver Stone. Yeah, it was I. It was exciting to discover Oliver Stone um, because Platoon it did blow me away, and it was exciting, and you could feel the fear of the of the soldiers. And we might get into it later, but I was too young to realize how didactic it was. <laughs> and some of, some of them I watched it recently, just last week, and some of the hackier moments uh, flew over my teenage head, and so it was exciting to see. Oliver Stone, and then he just had, he was so successful. He had such a big budget. And each of his films was a big deal, was a big cultural event. Um, so it was like, holy crap, the new Oliver Stone's coming out. And this time it's about The Doors. Um, and then this time it's about Wall Street. And uh, then JFK was a huge uh, cultural moment. And the films really aged like milk. Um, really? Oh, my God. Um, hey, I but, will not hear you say anything bad about Gus Van Sant's Milk. That film has not <laughs> aged poorly at all. Sorry. I'd be curious about how the film Milk has aged. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's a... <laughs> but what I was going to say, oh, yeah, JFK. Um, yeah, JFK is like your uncle who spends too much time on Facebook was given, like, this huge budget to say, like, yeah, well, my friend George down the pub says that Lee Harvey Oswald was not a lone gunman. If you look at the picture of the shadow, let's go home tonight and I'll show you. And then you end up covered in like pink yogurt from trying to recreate things. And it's, yeah, I think JFK has aged terribly because 
Well, Jeff well, is Twitter, Twitter or Facebook the movie, yeah, as you pointed out. It's like just, it's, it's the worst parts of that. And um, I think there was a time pre-internet um, when conspiracy theorists would have to have read books and they'd yeah. say, okay, well, according to this book I read, whatever, metal beams don't melt or whatever. Um, and uh, then you'd... They wouldn't have that big a reach, and they'd be they would only be surrounded by people they know in real life. So if you said something barmy about the Kennedy assassination, your friends would probably say, "Go on out of that, Darren. That's not true." And you, move on to another. I do love that you picked Darren, not Andrew. I do appreciate. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, you're just in my line of vision. <laughs> you you haven't seen the yogurt pots though. Come come yeah. back and look at these yogurt. Yeah, they're pots. all they're all over my kitchen here. I swear. Um, but no, like, like, okay, well, I think, yeah, that is something to talk about with Stone, because, like, Stone is one of those directors who I had a very similar relationship to, where, it, and it, it kind of, it's like the worst case of Tim Burton syndrome ever, where, like, when I was a kid starting out, Tim Burton was, like, you know, baby's first auteur, because it was, like, you can point to a <laughs> Tim Burton film and you can say, this is a movie that is a Tim Burton movie, because it looks and feels and has a texture that is different from if anybody else made. And Oliver Stone was kind of the same way, where that texture was, well, it's, it's actually just a little bit paranoid about uh, everything and how the world works and cynical about human nature and, and kind of maybe a little bit didactic. Uh, but you're a teenager, so you kind of just soak that in like a sponge. He's not cynical and- about Putin, <laughs> Or, well, sorry. Maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe that's unfair. I haven't watched the whole thing, but I was kind of like, when is he going to go after him? Uh, well, anyway, actually, the sorry. the Putin thing is interesting because um, I think Oliver Stone's biggest uh, weakness, in my opinion, is a lack of sense of humor and a lack of se- um, self awareness. And so, um, the thing about his sense of humor is. You know, like I, I don't want a custard pie fight in Platoon, but it's more, it's more about being able to see when something is absurd. Uh, so he was, he was on Colbert there a while ago promoting his Putin movie, and he said something really uh, ridiculous about Putin. He was like, "Well, everyone knows that," and then it was just something sycophantic towards Putin that nobody believed and the audience started laughing and then Oliver Stone said to Stephen Colbert why are they laughing and it's a sense of humor is not literally being able to tell a killer joke although sometimes it is it's often a sense it's like a perception of when something is ridiculous and this lack of perception of when something is ridiculous hinders Stone sometimes and especially in his later work, um, a film I reviewed a while ago for the now defunct website state.ie uh, was Savages. Uh, Savages, yeah. And it, it has the line that there's uh, Blake Lively had like this weird arrangement with two young men she lived with. And one of them was a war veteran. And uh, she said that, oh, he was wrestling with a lot of demons. And when we had sex, I had orgasms and he had wargasms. And it's one of the most ridiculous lines I've ever heard. Let's just cannot see Andrew's reaction. As somebody who has seen the movie Savages, I can confirm that is a line from the movie Savages. Yeah, so what are wargasms like? <laughs> like are, they, are they better or worse? Than... 
Like, well, it depends on which wargasm you're having. A second war- world wargasm is apparently really good for your self-image. A forever wargasm. Yeah, you want to have you want to have your granddad's wargasm. A wargasm, or, yeah. Or your or your, or your dad's. dad's. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So with the Oliver Stone, it's a bit like there was um, there's a sketch on the show, and I'll I'll find out for you. We'll put it in the show notes, and it's about. Um, coming of age and dating and stuff like that. And there's a sketch I saw in which this married couple were starting to go out a bit less. And then they meet this guy who's like really cool and he still goes to cool bars and he still stays up late and all this. And they feel lame in his presence. And then later in the evening, they realize that they are not the lame ones. This guy is a lame one because he shouldn't be going out clubbing at that age and... He should know better. So Oliver Stone is kind of like, is really cool if you're a teenager, but he's kind of the same guy throughout his career. And what's cool when you're 15, if you're still doing it, is not as cool then. And again, it's similar to Tim Burton in that when you reach the limits of somebody's creativity, it's like, yeah, they, do, yeah. yeah it's like they, each of them, reached uh, you got to see everything that they could do and they didn't evolve any further but they're still making loads of work but they still cross a certain threshold of success that they're still getting tons of money so film like savages like if it was a debut movie probably would not have been bankrolled because the script was shocking um but it's oliver stone director of platoon so here we are yeah i meant to ask like because when we were messaging about this you suggested you might pull the the pin out of the grenade and you might watch snowden did you watch Snowden? <laughs> That's between me and Snowden. <laughs> um, <laughs> only the he, spirit of the movie. Only he knows my internet history. No, actually, I didn't get around to it. Okay, cool. Um, uh, and I, I did. I was. That's actually a good example of. I would have been. It feels I, I don't know disloyal or something, but a, a friend of mine um, who you probably know of, uh, Nathan Rabin, the, the film critic, yeah. said that part of growing up is learning that Oliver Stone is full of it. And so when you're younger, you think he's great. And then it gets to the stage and it got to the stage where when Snowden was announced and Joseph Gordon-Levitt was playing him, I was like, well, I would be really on for watching uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's Snowden film if Oliver Stone was not directing it. Uh, Or if I were 10 years younger or 20 years younger. Yes. Yeah. If I was a teenager. But not only did I grow out of his work a little bit, but his work disimproved. Um, So Platoon is a very good film, in my opinion, um, and suits him, and it's born of his personal experience. And then uh, Wall Street suited him as well. Um, the Doors is slightly ridiculous, but it's still really fun. Um, Jim Morrison is another... Val oh, Kilmer. Oh, yeah. Val Kilmer. Um, and Jim Morrison and The Doors is another of those things that you... They're perfect for a certain age, but you grow out of a bit. Um, I thought... JFK was entertaining, but nonsense. I I hate to say it. Um, and uh, and as I said, internet conspiracy theorists have made it look worse in the years since then. And I thought Natural Born Killers was terrible, a terrible movie. It's, it was like you also have strong opinions about like uh, him as a writer uh, beforehand. So stuff like writing Scarface for Brian De Palma and stuff like that. I think you are not a huge fan of Scarface. 
I, yes. Uh, let me just give out about Natural Born Killers first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll add it to the list. So, yeah. so Natural Born Killers, uh, it's like he didn't, it's like he felt like he had about half a dozen points and none. So it's like the media is bad, but these guys are bad, but they're created by the media, but don't give out about the media. This is a two hour film given out about the media, something about Native Americans. And then it was like, the filming style was like sitting beside somebody in the 90s who was flicking between loads of different channels, like indiscriminately. Uh, it was, and yeah, he somehow got like a not great performance out of Juliette Lewis, who I think is a great actress. And yeah, that was that was kind of a turning point for me off Oliver Stone. He won me back. Was it though. a wrong turn per- or a U-turn perhaps? U-turn is great. <laughs> but actually his films... He's such a stylist that I think his films uh, that work best for me are ones that are not trying to say anything huge politically. Um, So I think the best thing about Platoon is that you feel the the pointlessness of war and the lack of romance about war and the fear of the soldiers and the the tragedy. And it doesn't really have a structure to it. so it's not even cathartic and it doesn't have an all is lost moment because it's all is lost all the time. Um, so it's, and it's a brutal film. So it's, I'm glad he didn't get into like the geopolitics of the whole thing. Um, it was more about what it was like the right there in the thick of it. Yeah, it's like you're bearing witness to it. Um, and it's because it's, he doesn't get into the politics of it too much. Um, it can apply to other situations and other wars, including one that America just withdrew from in very recent times, depending on when not to date the podcast. Yeah, yeah, not to date the podcast. Sometime in the recent past. Yeah, um, I think that's safe. They've been withdrawing for a while, so the, yeah, it felt like it was about ten years ago that people were saying like eventually like. United States are going to leave, and then the Taliban are going to um, get back in charge. Like, that. and even like before the war started, people were saying like, "This is a terrible idea." Uh, but Taliban uh, also comes... bad. Sorry, <laughs> to, to be clear, yes. Although, although they're they're doing a lot of PR at the moment. Oh, they are. They're very much like on going the PR. on television with kind of like women, kind of anchors, and talking about how they're they're. It's going to be a more inclusive um, Afghan society than kind of it's Taliban 2.0. Um, Soft reboot kind of no, thing. They, they, color color me skeptical. Yeah, yeah. no, I did. And I, I think I, I was talking to my brother who would know a lot more about these sorts of things. He, he was pointing out that like kind of their, their actions don't bear them out. Plus the people who are doing the, those things don't care what the leaders are saying. Or what they've decided their kind of strategy is. They have like a Kalashnikov and um, they're happy to kind of take things into their own hands. Anyway, sorry. Can I say um, Natural Born Killers? I'll have to watch that again and see if it does hold up. Because I... I guarantee you it does not. Thing, thing I like always think about about that movie was the the Rodney, Rodney Dangerfield, Dangerfield section. Yes, yeah, so how did I, I suspect? It was yeah. just genius. Like it's, it's, it's such like fantastic character it's a fantastic um casting and um it it's um and so kind of um a, a dark a comic but but uh, yeah i do i do have to kind of watch it again and see if it it holds up 
I don't remember much about the rest of the movie. Yes. outside of that section which is probably uh, an issue of itself but yeah to, to bring it back to oliver stone um because i do like oliver stone critical drubbing entirely deserved um and just one more boot in before we kind of move on and maybe give him a bit of praise i do love that when pauline kale the the famous film critic who we've mentioned several times on this podcast in the past one of the great voices in american film criticism was asked about her decision to retire from writing reviews at the new yorker she remarked the prospect of having to sit through another Oliver Stone movie is too much. That was it. That was her justification for retiring as like one of the preeminent American film critics. But in terms of Platoon, what's several things that are kind of like startling about this. As we mentioned before, before this, Stone had done a bunch of writing, um, particularly say movies like Midnight Express, uh, movies like um, Scarface, which we mentioned but he kind of struggled to establish himself as a director. He had obviously a very interesting life, a very interesting young life. He was born in France and raised in New York City, dropped out of Yale in 1965, uh, filled with the world words of Joseph Conrad, set out for the Orient and for adventure. He paid to Saigon, took his job in the city's teaching in the, in the city's Chinese district, teaching school, um, and he was 18. And then he like he ended up working in an engine room of a merchant ship. Uh, run by, in his own words, characters right out of the 19th century. The fat captain, the soldier who worked for the CIA, the bull of the engineer. He switched ships, sailed through a hurricane home, and in 1966, moved to Mexico, where he began writing a 1,400-page autobiography novel, autobiographical novel titled Child's Night Dream. A few months after that, he said, actually, you know what? This gap year hasn't really worked out. Went back to Yale. Uh, he kept writing his novel, flunking his courses. Uh, and in 1967, he tried to get his work published and was rejected. And then he, he volunteered to serve in Vietnam, which was obviously uh, a huge influence, uh, a huge influence on what would become Platoon. He, he wrote Platoon. He did oh, Born on the Fourth of July as well, didn't he? He did. Yeah. He did a like oh, yeah, his, his a loose trilogy. Like yeah. I, I would argue, his Vietnam trilogy is his best work. It's Platoon. It's Born on the Fourth of July, and it's the oft forgotten Heaven and Earth, starring Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, which is, I think, a really great look at the the Vietnam I've experience in its yeah. Uh, it's it's a really I think the whole the three of them together are this wonderful snapshot of kind of like the Vietnam experience. Um, and obviously, he wrote this script when he came back. It was one of the first things that he wrote. Uh, tried to get it published. Uh, tried to get it uh, sell it to the studios. Couldn't sell it to the studios because uh, Vietnam movies were not hugely popular at the time. And actually, this is something that I think Joe specifically wanted to talk about, actually, as well, in terms of back context. Because, like, Platoon is an interesting movie because of when it arrives and what it does. And um, we talked about it being one of the definitive Vietnam War movies. There are currently four Vietnam War movies on the 250. So those four movies are Apocalypse Now from 1979, The Deer Hunter, and obviously Full Metal Jacket. Um, and this, those are the four. And... What's interesting about that is that, generally speaking, the argument was up until the release of Platoon, Vietnam War movies were not generally preoccupied uh, with the actual war itself. They tended to be focused on the aftermath or the before. So think of, for example, The Deer Hunter. And while you do spend time in country, think of how much time you spend with the characters at home beforehand, watching them before they get sent off and then following them when they come back. Was Rambo uh, think of uh, uh, before this as well? Rambo was before this, but Rambo is a yeah. Rambo is a very different but, kettle of fish, and this this is I think something. But yeah, that's not know. focused on the kind of like to 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 your point. Was yeah, there, wasn't the there wasn't there like a John Wayne 
Uh, oh, the, the Green Beret from 1967. Yes, starring George Takei. Um, that's the kind of stuff that largely exists. That was the stuff. It was very much like a promotional, we are selling the war to the American public in 1967, which is coincidentally the same year that Platoon is shot, because Platoon takes place in the gap between 1967 and 1968, which is roughly when American public opinion changed about the war. The movie climaxes with, uh, spoilers for the Vietnam War, I guess, uh, climaxes with what is loosely adapted from Oliver Stone's experience of the New Year's Day battle in 1968, which was a massive um, like moment for American forces in the, Vietnam in terms of... Is that the Tet Offensive? I think the Tet Offensive was slightly later in 1968. It was a couple of months later. It was also um, New Year, wasn't it? Okay, maybe it was then. I thought I, I, mean, thought, it's, the, it's, I thought the Tet was separate. I think Tet follows like shortly after the. I might be wrong. Sorry. Okay. Well, no, no, it is definitely part of nineteen. So it is. Yeah, it's it's January 19th, during the Lunar New Year. Yes. So yeah. it was January. It was January thirty first through to September twenty uh, third. So yes, this was before the Tet Offensive, but around the same time, it was while I believe um, the Pope had negotiated a ceasefire, um, and basically there was a, a massive attack, and that got coverage in the states, and that with the images of that filtering through on TV were some of the factors in kind of changing the general mood of the larger body of the public uh, against the war. But yeah, by by and large, most Vietnam movies to that point, so we're talking about movies like, say, for example, Coming Home, we're talking about The Deer Hunter, uh, we're talking, yes, even about Rambo, uh, were largely not about the experience of the war uh, themselves. I mean, arguably, even Apocalypse Now like was you know it that was francis ford coppola making heart of darkness and arguably using vietnam as a setting itself uh, and i think when you watch it it feels more and i know we joke about this movie being ponderous and this movie being kind of like having profound things to say and and maybe being a bit didactic but i think that it is anchored and grounded in a way that say apocalypse now isn't apocalypse now is a journey upriver into madness and that is kind of and Vietnam as a metaphor, whereas Platoon is Vietnam as a metaphor, but it's also Vietnam. Yeah, and that's Apocalypse kind of now could have been could have taken place during any conflict. Yes, I think that's I think that's it. Whereas this feels very specifically like a Vietnam kind of movie. I think Joe wanted to like myself and Joe have been talking quite a bit about this, which actually, which is I feel uh, we've been meshing back and forth. I think Joe, you wanted to say mention just a little bit about the the other stuff that was happening in coverage of the Vietnam War in pop culture in the early 80s, mid 80s, late 80s, around the time this was coming out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, there's the the context of when the film comes out is very interesting. I believe it came out it, chronologically in between um, Top Gun and Full Metal yes. Jacket. Yes, it and, is. Um, yeah, actually, I was listening to a podcast a while ago about A Few Good Men. And... They were saying that uh, military advisors uh, had notes to give on a few good men saying, like, we don't like it because it makes the military look bad. And I'm sure the filmmakers replied, that's the Jesus in point. And I'd say I had read in some of the notes prior to this that that was the case with Platoon. Most uh, American military films, I'm not military films from other countries as well uh, are done with the cooperation of the of the local military um so top gun is actually a classic example of that but it it happens uh in 
the likes of and, it, and like we should point out top gun led to a huge spike in recruitment for the air force like i mean there are famous stories about while you couldn't have uh, recruitment stands at cinemas they would set them up outside cinemas in order to catch people coming out after having seen Top Gun saying, would you like to join the Air Force? Yeah, and Anthony Edwards uh, said he felt really guilty about that. Uh, people had approached him on the street and said, like, my son joined the Air Force after watching Top Gun or I joined after watching Top Gun. And he, he said he felt guilty about that happening. And the, But then the military involvement happens in the likes of Independence Day uh, and like, non-strictly military movies. And it's one of the reasons uh, Zero Dark Thirty um, was expensive is because they had to pay to use those kinds of helicopters and military equipment and stuff themselves because they wouldn't just be given a, a blank check or a loan to do that kind of stuff. Uh, so uh, Platoon was, was hugely important at the time for its portrait of the war. And it's, it is weird that it happened like 10 or 15 years or actually it's between 15 and 20 years actually after the conflict um, during the conflict as far as i know the green berets was the only uh, film set in vietnam released during the conflict um i'm happy to be proven wrong in that but i think that's the case um so yeah platoon was kind of and we talked about it being cultural um touchstone it's it opened wounds and it started a conversation and it was a political uh, whipping boy in some corners. And um, yeah, the, it's hard to imagine a film coming out now that reignites a big political conversation and about how America sees itself. And it's, it kind of blows my mind that a film like Platoon um, in which Many of the soldiers behaved reprehensibly. A film that says that the war was not, there, there's no glory in it and that it was just pointless and tragic would be so popular in America with mainstream American audiences. Well, I, and I, I, sorry, I go think on. kind of, I, I got the, the like, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert, but I got, I got the impression there, like, like the, during the short time that I've spent in America talking to people about movies, that they, they 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 want like these sorts of like tragedies to be remembered like they they they, they like that they really like black hawk down for example and, like not just as a movie but, but because it like that it helps them memorialize yeah yeah. yeah yeah but but black hawk down is like a true story. is not that critical of american foreign policy um, right so like, watching platoon you get the impression that oliver stone thinks we really shouldn't have been over there. And what a waste of American and Vietnamese lives. And what a waste of resources. And this how pointless sucks. it was. Yeah, how the pointless. damage that it's caused. Yeah, and, and then like we, we break these men and then we just throw them back into society and good luck with that. And I don't think that that's the case with Black Hawk Down. Um, there's like the scene at the start with Sam Shepard of Black Hawk Down and Sam Shepard um, saying that what's happening before the Americans arrived was disgraceful. And the implication is that um, intervention is a good thing. Um, so, yeah, I think Americans like to memorialize it, but to to show a film with uh, set in Vietnam where the soldiers behaved reprehensibly, that struck me as quite unusual. Um, 
I mean, it, the, it even was, the it was Hunt- massively con- sorry, it was massively controversial. We should acknowledge, and there will be articles in the show notes going into like there are lots of statements from like veterans saying, like you have Jim Thomas, who was an army medic at Hamburger Ridge, saying that you know one scene uh, made him cower in his chair and hope that no one would think he was a Vietnam veteran. You have people like. Um, the Jim Amos, the, the veteran and kind of like commentator who wrote that, and I quote here, platoon has spread excrement, excrement on the wall of the Vietnam War Memorial. How can anyone having viewed this film and accepted its premise journey to the memorial and look at a name of a father, friend or relative without wondering if this soldier died honorably or was he killed by his own brother in arms or doped up or by his own hand or betrayed by his leadership? So like it was something that was very raw at the time. And, and I mean, and I, and you had the other side coming out where you had people who were saying, actually, no, this is this is as close as I have seen to a movie reflecting what it was like over there. Even if nothing, even if I personally didn't experience the kind of horrors that this movie depicts, I know people who did or I served with people who did or we were all aware that there were things like this happening. So you, you had this debate that this movie kind of sparked, which is remarkable because as as Joe said, like this was 20 years removed. And, you know, obviously you, we mentioned all the previous Vietnam films that existed, but like by 1986, you were smack bang in the middle of the Reagan era. You had movies like, for example, uh, we mentioned like explicitly um, Top Gun, uh, glamorizing the military the year before being a huge uh he- or the air force being a huge huge kind of box office draw huge cultural phenomenon you had stuff like the rambo movies and like there are like there are interviews and, and again i recommend people who are interested read read the notes but there are like stories of people going to sit down with veterans after platoon and the veterans going you know if we had two rambos we would have won the vietnam war like in terms of like the presentation of vietnam in popular culture and this thing that was happening, and I think it's kind of interesting, and it ties into what Joe mentioned about like not handling Vietnam directly uh, in contemporary pop culture, because uh, I think Joe mentioned specifically, like when we were talking back and forth, how you could see Vietnam reflected in the movies of the sixties and seventies allegorically. And I mean, we've talked on this podcast before about how the greatest Vietnam movie ever made was Jaws by Steven Spielberg, which is a movie about a generation of people who send their children into the ocean to get devoured by this monstrous mechanical machine and who sit on the beaches and kind of cheer them on as that happens. But I mean, even as that, you mentioned like Bonnie and Clyde, for example, you mentioned Beguile. Hey, college boy, these... what are you doing at the beach? <laughs> <laughs> I just uh, needed, needed to, a sense of duty. Yeah. yeah. Um... <laughs> uh, but the, but that the sea was also a big vagina. Yeah, a, a big, a giant blue vagina. Um, yeah. And the shark is a, is a big gray penis. Um, but I mean, like, what's interesting is that when you get to the 80s, that metaphor has flipped. So instead of, like, the primary Vietnam metaphors being, like, cynical and depressing and, oh my God, how much have we suffered? By the 80s, it had become, like, recycled into blockbuster filmmaking. And you started seeing movies in which America, all American heroes were basically cast in the role of, like, guerrilla warfare against superior tactical numerical um, foes. So movies like Predator, in which Arnold Schwarzenegger plays an all-American hero who covers himself in mud, crawls through little ravines and defeats this massive imperialist foe who has attacked him in the jungle. Movies like Red Dawn, in which America is invaded by a bunch of foreign powers and a small town has to fight back against them. Die Hard, in which Bruce Willis, you know, has to crawl through air vents, you know, not even with shoes on, covered in dirt and carrying a machine gun to fight a bunch of smartly dressed Germans. Or even Star Wars, the Star 
Star Wars trilogy where like our all American heroes, our blonde hair college boys are like insurrectionists fighting an, an evil empire power. And you have the, the Ewoks are these toyetic teddy bear insurgents kind of, like, fighting on this. The, they are. They are. They're, they're t- cuddly Viet Cong. And so I find it interesting that like while all this stuff was happening in the 80s blockbuster kind of milieu and culture, Oliver Stone arrives and he's like, oh, by the way, here's a brutal dose of what is very close to my experience of the reality of this. Um, And then it manages to kind of impact in the way that it did. Um, And just very quickly in terms of giving some context for this, we should note Oliver Stone had a fundamentally crazy uh, 1986 where he released Salvador. Uh, which was, I believe, one of his... Was it his first feature-length directorial film? Yeah. Um, and starring uh, James Wood. He released that in March of that year. He tried to get it into Cannes. It apparently caused a bunch of controversy among the French critical press, who believed that Stone was, and I quote, a right-wing agitator, uh, which I kind of love. The French press were like, get this right-wing nut job away from us, um, because they, they assumed that he was going to be pro-US intervention uh, and all that sort of stuff. That movie is released, it kind of quietly fades into the background, but it earns him enough credibility that he can go and he can get money for Platoon. Now, American studios won't touch this with a barge pole. They won't give him financing for it. None of the American studios are willing to put up cash. So he has to go to a British company. I believe it's Himdale Film Corp. And they, along with Orion, managed to scrap together $6.5 million. Yes. studio that brought you RoboCop. Obligatory RoboCop Obligatory RoboCop reference. Um... And we should remark, by the way, Orion phenomenal run. Very like a studio that like on, on one hand is like the Canon Film Group, but on the other hand produced four Best Picture winners in the in the core of like eight years, uh, which is remarkable to me. But they they get the money together. They go to the Philippines. They they start shooting this thing. While they're about to shoot in the Philippines, there's a coup d'état uh, that takes place. Um, Stone is like, what the hell's going on here? The studio's like, no, 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 pull, pull everybody back, pull everybody back. And Stone is like, no, okay, we will push filming like out by two weeks. And then if the coup's still happening, we'll push it out by two weeks again. Because he realized that if he pulled back, he would never get to make it. And you had like stories of like Willem Dafoe arriving in the Philippines early and being like, there's, there's chaos in the streets. There are shootings in the streets. There are machine guns going off at night in the air. Um, and like, Somehow Stone manages to convince everybody to stay in the Philippines while this is happening. They shoot the movie. Um, The movie has a very interesting production, um, which I think, again, worth noting. And I think Joe mentioned this when we were talking about it as well. Like the involvement of Dale Dye, um, retired Marine Corps um, veteran, and arguably one of the most important figures uh, in Hollywood in terms of presentation of the armed forces. Also worked on Starship Troopers, written by Ed Newmeyer, directed by Paul Verhoeven, the writer and director of Robocop. Robocop reference. <laughs> there could be parallels drawn between Vietnam and Starship Troopers as well. Oh, definitely. Young people yeah. being pointlessly drafted into a war that shouldn't have been happening and being overpowered by forces with inferior technology and resources. Yeah, even the tunnel imagery and stuff like that yeah. and the, the kind of like the level of violence on display and stuff. But yeah, the thing about Die that is interesting is that like this is ground zero for, and I suspect the success of the movie financially and awards is also the reason why this became so common. But this is ground zero for the 
huh, we really put these actors through hell to make this movie um, school of like war filmmaking. Because apparently Die took the cast. Now, depending on who you ask, it was 14 days. So it was either two straight weeks uh, or according to Die, three weeks, which implies he gave them weekends off because he's a nice guy, um, but took them out into the wilderness and basically tortured them for 14 days, then brought them back and they began filming. Yeah, and it's they, fascinating to hear. They didn't sorry. have a break in between boot camp and filming as well. I, I saw an interview with Charlie Sheen where he said that, yeah, they're like digging foxholes and sleeping outside and like the humidity with bugs around them and snakes crawling over their feet and everything. And um, there was simulated like attacks on them yeah. and all this crazy stuff. Simulated orgasm. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Sleep deprivation. And uh, then when the couple of weeks were over um, and they were about to start filming, Charlie Sheen said he assumed that they would all go back to their hotels and like get rest at least like a night in a bed. But no, the next day, boom, they're straight into shooting Platoon. Uh, so with, it's funny. It's like they they'd frayed the actors down, whittled them, broken their spirits. And they're like, no, no, let's not get them rested <laughs> to waste all of this uh, like hazing we've been Suffering. Doing. Charlie yeah, Sheen's like uh, Jack Black in Tropic Thunder, like trying to get back to the hotel. <laughs> all these like rocks of cocaine. Or tiger blood. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Uh, sorry, Darren. I was going to say, I, I'm, I'm conflicted about the, like what Oliver Stone calls method directing. And Kubrick is a bit like that as well. Um, so part of me thinks that it's a bit pompous and like he has like Tom Berenger and Willem Dafoe and people like that. And like, well, you're you're the Laurence Olivier. It's called acting, dear boy. Yeah, like the, you can be making. You know, you can pretend to be scared and stuff like that because it's your job and it's your craft. Like there's that terrible story about when um, Dustin Hoffman was doing Kramer versus Kramer, and he had that scene where he uh, smashes a wine glass against a wall in Meryl Streep's presence, and the flinch is real. That it wasn't. She wasn't expecting the wine glass to shatter. And like, well, Meryl Streep Shining is, is another example as well. Yeah, like there's but, plenty of examples of horrible, like, horrible stuff being done to people in the name of art. Yeah, but like Meryl Streep is really good at pretending stuff. She's like one of the best people in the world at pretending stuff. So you could just say, "We're going to smash a, a prop glass," and you're going to pretend to be startled by the prop glass. And I'm very confident she would have done a good job of that. Um, so I do have that that kind of. Uh, Belief, especially The Shining as well, like Nicholson uh, and Shelley Duvall, they're always good. They're always good, regardless of whether they're doing like a cozy shoot with like Nancy Myers or like co-starring Roxanne. They're still always good. Um, so I don't know if you have to put them through the ringer, but there's a huge caveat there, which is Charlie Sheen has never been as good as he is in Platoon. And so like, <laughs> well, part of me hates the idea of method direction and method uh, no method acting does have its merits but method but direction that sort of stereotype of using it as an excuse to do be to be a jerk to other people I think yeah. probably that would, would would you say he he got like the the second best performance out of him in wall street then kind of like like, like there, there yeah. there's definitely kind of like an unlikability but it, it it really fits with the character like the kind of smarminess yeah um, actually my favorite well, after those two, my favorite Charlie Sheen performance is in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, 
which is around that era. Um, but uh, Sheen actually stayed up for a couple of nights to. Do you remember that role in Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Yes, yeah. yeah. He's, he's the valet, isn't he? If I'm no, 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 no. He's the. He's in the police station. Yeah, he's oh, okay. the suspect in the police station. Who um, who plays the valet? Who am I confusing it with? Because that's somebody else famous as well at the restaurant, isn't there? Somebody. Um, okay, never mind. But it's been, I know it's who you're talking about, but I I don't know the name of the actor. It'd be great yeah. if it turned out to be Emilio Estevez. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Charlie Sheen in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, um, he's in like one scene and Jennifer Grey plays Ferris Bueller's sister who's trying to sabotage his day off and through her efforts she ends up in a police station handcuffed to the bench and handcuffed next to her in the bench is Charlie Sheen as this like juvenile delinquent and um, yeah, he... He tells her that her problem is her, is not Ferris Bueller. And it's a brilliant scene. It's really funny and insightful. And he's just pitch perfect in it. But apparently Sheen stayed up all night to play this like frazzled, possibly adult, intoxicated character. So he did method act in that as well. Um, and uh, I do love hot shots as well. I have to say, yeah. so uh, and hot I think shots part two. Yeah, I, I think they're only okay. Uh, I prefer, I prefer the Leslie Nielsen era of Zucker Zucker uh, films, but of Zaz uh, Zucker, Zucker. It's been a while. Uh, yeah, I so I them on VHS and watched them like until I couldn't watch them anymore. Hot shots definitely has its fans, uh, but. Yeah, so I'm I'm conflicted in that generally I hate method direction and method acting, while sometimes gives us Raging Bull, sometimes it gives us Jared Leto and Suicide Squad. And Twisted. I... <laughs> and, but damaged. 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 So edgy. Um You know he's damaged because he has a tattoo that says it. Oh, I I hadn't even read his tattoo. That's uh I mean that's level. your problem. Like you call yourself a film critic, Joe. You're not even reading the, the characters' tattoos. I know. <laughs> um, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm conflicted uh, because generally I hate method direction, as they call it. But Charlie Sheen did good work. But would he have done good work anyway? Yeah. No, it, that it wasn't is, rhetorical. Like, you guys can answer that. that. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't pretend to know what's going on inside Charlie Sheen. I don't think even Charlie Sheen pretends to know what's going on inside Charlie Sheen's head. I do think like I do think this is probably his best performance. I think he's used really well here, which sounds like a really condescending way of describing an like actor's performance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's like he, he didn't get like the film got two Oscar nominations uh, for acting. It got uh, it got eight nominations in total. I think it tied um, as the most nominated film of the year. But it got like Tom Berenger um, and Willem Dafoe in Best Supporting Actor. Um, and I think both of those nominations are deserved. I think they're both phenomenal. I think that uh, and I think Stone, one of the things Stone did uh, was he cast those two actors at that point in their career against type. Ironically, Tom Berenger has since leaned very hard into that type to the point where you go back and you watch it. It's like, that's a Tom Berenger character. Uh, but like Willem Dafoe was coming off. I think he'd seen him into Live and Die in L.A. Uh, and he'd, he'd seen and very little though, right? Uh, yeah, he wasn't huge at that point. Um, he was like, he Streets hadn't played Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, he was in Streets of Fire as a bad guy as well. 
Yeah, that's it. Exactly. Like as a, as a vampire, basically, but not a not literal vampire, but just a guy in white makeup in black leather. Um, and then Tom Berenger had obviously done things like he'd been a soap opera star. Um, he'd done things like the Young Adventures of Butch and Sundance, um, the, like the prequel to the Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Um, but yeah, he yeah he was generally seen as being kind of a a good guy, a cool, charming, charismatic guy. And this movie kind of flips both of those on their head, which is very clever. Um, before you kind of move on to asking kind of the three questions getting started is worth noting just in terms of like the cultural impact of Platoon, because when you make this much money and you win this many awards, you are going to change cinema, basically, you're going to change at least blockbuster cinema in the immediate or short term. It was noted that like... We'll have Joe fact check any of these things. So let me tell you about the cultural impact of it. It's like, no, <laughs> yeah. I don't really like that. I'll tell you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> But like, it, like you have people saying that like in nineteen in nineteen seventy, you know, in the late nineteen seventies, you couldn't sell books about Vietnam, you couldn't sell movies about Vietnam, and they say that like one of the changing things was the going up of the Vietnam Memorial in nineteen eighty two, and that kind of made it kosher to kind of talk about this stuff. But it was Platoon that really kind of popularized it. So like Joe mentioned that it wasn't until the year after Platoon that you finally got to see Stanley Kubrick's uh, Full Metal Jacket, for example. You had like Francis Ford Coppola got to make Gardens of Stone. Uh, which is you know set in washington but is about the war you had hamburger hill had no distributor until after platoon was released at which point every studio was ringing up on the phone demanding to see them even brian de palma who had been like one of the guys who had shepherded stone who had directed um scarface de palma only got to make casualties of war based on the success of platoon and like you can look at casualties of war and you can see that's the same thing it's like let's take a hot young actor and put him in a vietnam movie directed by this guy who has been around for a decade or so and studios don't quite know what his dealio is yet um so can you i did have this sorry. Oh, oh sorry can i talk about casualties of war okay let's go for it it's my favorite vietnam movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> Wow, that was a, that was an unintentional setup. It is your it is your favorite though. It's yes. What is it that you what what makes it your favorite? Um, I think it's kind of beautiful, and I I think that I think it's a great idea to tell as small a story as possible um, in uh, in the context. rather than trying to encompass the whole experience. Yes, yeah, um, and through this small story. Um, you get it tells other details so if this thing happens that means that lawlessness happens and i'll tell a little bit of the context and story of it so it's based on a real case um whereby michael j fox plays soldier a private who uh, witnesses a rape of a vietnamese woman by several soldiers and um like tells on them tells like doesn't partake and uh, they mock him for it. And then they, then he bring, brings it up the rank and it ends up becoming a major internal case. And um, <laughs> tragically based on a real event and Sean Penn plays commanding officer. Um, so yeah, what I liked about it was, first of all, uh, I just think as a directing tour de force, I think uh, Brian De Palma is so gifted at framing things and then i also loved and this is something where platoon falls down even though i like platoon sean penn's character um, is reprehensible he's like partly responsible for this war crime that happens and wants to sweep it under the carpet but he's 
prior to that, he's really good to his men and he's really compassionate and he faces difficulty in doing the best job that he can. And there's a scene early on where somebody is badly injured and Sean Penn is saying, look into my eyes, which Tarantino actually says is a big influence on the whole sequence in Reservoir Dogs when Tim Roth is shot. So you really feel for him before he does this horrible stuff. And then also the fact that this thing happened implies that horrible things were happening throughout the conflict. So by making it as small as possible, it's like uh, dropping a stone into still water. You can you can see the resonance throughout. And um, so, yeah, no, I think um, Michael J. Fox is brilliant in it. And I love how it's framed. How it starts with Michael J. Fox sitting on a, a train, I think it's a New York subway, and then how thinking back to what happened. Um, so it's like you Seems carry- a Vietnamese woman, doesn't he? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, which reminds him of, of the whole thing. And um, yeah, it's a it's a kind of a clever storytelling device. And it's a reminder that even after a story has been resolved, the participants in the story are still carrying it with them, um, often for their whole lives. Um, so uh, I thought that the way in which I preferred to Platoon was in the voiceover in Platoon, Charlie Sheen mentions that uh, Willem Dafoe's character and Tom Berenger's characters, uh, Elias and Barnes, uh, were like competing two father fathers. Two fathers. Wrestling within me. Yeah. And it's like, not really. The voiceover suggests that that's Oliver Stone's intention, but you didn't, you got the impression that Elias, played by Willem Dafoe, is like a father figure and he's kind and he's protective and he's warm. But Barnes, the brutal um, commanding officer played by Tom Berenger, has no nuance, I thought. Uh, I thought that he didn't seem like a father figure at all. He just seemed like a monster that they're all terrified of, that they wouldn't even have the courage to shoot him because, like 50 Cent, he'd been shot several times and survived. And yeah, I didn't I didn't get the feeling of him as, as a nuanced character, as intended by the voiceover that he was supposed to be some kind of father figure. And I know that there probably were people who, if they were your commanding officer, and if they behaved that way, you would see them in a one-dimensional way. But for a viewer, it's much more satisfying to see duality, to see that somebody can be loyal to their men, uh, yet behave monstrously to other people. It's um, the lack of greyness in Barnes uh, was an obstacle for the film for me. And it's it's something that Casualties of War that I, I believe did better. I find a problem with Elias as well this time watching it that I didn't find watching it before. Whereas, like, kind of before watching the movie, I'd really kind of um, um, loved him as a character and found it so... Anyway, sorry, without revealing too much. But it, this... This time around, I don't know, it, it just felt kind of, almost kind of, um, I know maybe this is, is something that gets thrown around a bit too much, but kind of like creepy. Like it was, it was definitely a very kind of a, it felt like a very sexualized performance. Interesting. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I'd, I'd, well, I mean, I'd, they're they're like not to jump too far ahead into the inappropriate smoking section, but there is a moment where he puts a gun into Charlie Sheen's mouth and blows into it. Yeah, uh, yeah. which is I thought it know, was it's very not quite, kind of it's not quite Michael Fassbender. Uh, I'll do the fingering, um, kind of, but it's it's almost. Yeah, there was kind of like I felt like there were. Uh, oh, sorry, yeah, I just got that reference. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, Okay, well, I feel like we're reaching kind of like, yeah. we're kind of reaching the spoiler zone. So, Andrew, do you remember the first time you saw Platoon, actually? Do you have any, like, particular memories associated with it or any strong feelings towards it? Um, I'd, Yeah, I'd, I'd, I think I probably would have been in my teens. It was 19 diggity eight. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, um, yeah, the, like, sim- sim- similar to most people, I think. It was a kind of like a rite of passage. Um, yeah, no... Which I'd yourself? be kind of the similar thing. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be similar. I would have seen this as a teenager. And again, like like Joe, this would have been one of my gateways to kind of like impromptu self-taught film school where it's like, ooh, this Oliver Stone guy, he seems interesting and cool. I should watch all of his movies. Um, And like, yeah, Um, I, I think then we'll jump into the three questions to get us started. So, Joe, do you think that Platoon belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Just about. Um, so... Yeah, I'll, actually, I'll just summarize a couple of things I didn't quite say. Overall, I think it's a very good film. Um, it's, it captures the in, intensity and chaos and tragedy of war that many other films uh, haven't done beforehand. But some of the strokes in it were a bit broad. Some of the voiceover was a bit excessive when Charlie Sheen says... We were now a platoon that was fighting internally. I wanted to say, I know Charlie Sheen. I've been watching it for an hour. We've just seen that happen. Um, Show don't tell, Mr. Stone. Show don't tell. (laughs) Um, And yeah, like as I mentioned, a couple of the characters are a little broadly drawn. But overall, not only is it an intense, accomplished film, but it's really important um, for America's perception of itself and for um, the national and international conversation about war which tragically we're still having i think like you when we were talking about this you mentioned the idea that like stone on the documentaries has like said that he hoped that movies like platoon would maybe affect the american public consciousness and help push them away from doing the same thing uh, over and over again and like this is one of the big things around the coverage of platoon when it was released because a lot of people like a lot of veterans um a lot of military experts a lot of pop culture commentators um all of which obviously have you know completely equivalent uh points of view or expertise on the matter but they all made the observation that a lot of the young men who went to vietnam went there having had particular values or visions of war instilled in them um, not only by, as as the movie itself references, their grandparents fighting in World War One and their parents fighting in World War Two, but the way in which uh, American cinema and, and the war genre had codified those experiences and kind of reduced them to kind of cliches and kind of myths and stories and how those imagery, that imagery had been like recycled through film and it was coming into television and all the people arriving in Vietnam thought they were going to be in like those World War II propaganda films directed by John Ford. Um, And Platoon was important because it helped. And movies like Platoon are important because they did change the context of what a war movie could be. And we'll maybe talk in the spoiler zone about like the mechanics of that, because Ebert, I think, wrote very clearly and very effectively on why he thinks Platoon works in terms of craft and technique. 
But I, I do think that like that is something to note about it is the idea that, you know, it and and again, like we're talking about this. We mentioned earlier on the context of like I didn't schedule this planning for it to overlap with the U.S. withdrawal of Afghanistan. I swear I had wanted to do this for a while and it just happened that we ended up recording it the week that that happened. But I do think it's it's notable that after Vietnam, you had an extended period of, you know, a 35, 36 years where the U.S.'s involvement in foreign wars was, you know, you obviously you had the Gulf War, you had Haiti, you had bombings in, in Eastern Europe, Grenada. you had the NATO involvement there. Yeah, Grenada, the invasion of Grenada and stuff like that. You had those, but they were generally smaller scale operations. You didn't have... Like coming out of World War II, you had Korea within a decade. You had Vietnam a decade after that. I think it's it's interesting that after Vietnam, you had a long while where the United States as a culture said, not necessarily on that scale again, I think. Well, well, Until they, you get to... Until 9-11. Yeah. Yeah, I think sorry, they realized sorry. how much damage like it, it, it had on them. They, 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 um the idea was instead of instead of going to these places, like why don't we just kind of like, you know, do 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 what they started doing in Vietnam, but do it in Afghanistan, like with the kind of like Mujahideen, create 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 the same sort of um, quagmire there that we had to endure in in in, yeah, in Vietnam. Yeah, only this time for other people rather for than the Soviets, for us. Yeah, yeah, for the Soviets, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I find it kind of interesting. And again, sorry, this is a very dark and very solemn tangent for a movie podcast. But just when Joe mentioned that, when Joe mentioned Oliver Stone going, I wanted people to look at this and say, let's not do this again. I find it interesting that, you know, and I'm not saying Platoon single-handedly did this, but I think the conversation about Vietnam did this, where like 35 years is roughly a generation. Like it's roughly a generation of people. And I think that the Vietnam experience and as it's presented in movies and platoon as an example of that is that I think that's indicative of the impact that it had perhaps. Um, and yeah, I, I find that kind of fascinating to look at where like platoon didn't stop this from ever happening again, but it, it did maybe, and, and you know, like the, the context of platoon, the conversation that led to platoon, the, the converse, the feelings coming out of the Vietnam war did perhaps change for until people forgot about it. I find well, that yeah. kind of interesting. I mean, I mean, there, there were other things as well, like, like, like the, the part, part of, I believe part of the reason. Sorry, we're, we're getting off the, but I believe part yeah. of the reason they were, they weren't as involved in Bosnia was was, was not because of Vietnam, but because of uh, what 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 had happened in 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 Somalia. So like the like there there's kind of like each, kind of um, a reaction against. Yeah, yeah. Like the idea is to have a good war. And um, like like the I suppose like people who liked Thatcher felt like that she accomplished the that Falklands. in the Falklands. Um, people who would be cheering her. Um, um, the Empire will strike back. But Andrew, what about yourself? Do you think Platoon belongs on the list of the two hundred and fifty greatest movies ever made? Um, it's difficult to say. I'd agree with Joe. It is quite broad. Um. It and it 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 didn't um, this this time watching it I I I I uh, I didn't feel kind of like the 
the power of it as much. What I did find was the 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 the, the violence. It's weird because in I suppose in your teens you're you're watching so much violence, <laughs> and you're maybe more desensitized to it then than when you're like kind of a soft adult. Um, but um, I don't I I I I don't know if it belongs. I I I like I I'm I'm happy to Full Metal Jackets on it. I think that's a better movie. But um, I yeah yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a, a, a sort of a hesitant kind of maybe slash yes. Yeah, I, I would be I would have started out at a maybe and then kind of I think I've talked myself into a yes just doing research for this uh, in terms of looking at the movie's impact, looking at the, the way that it affected culture, looking at the debates that it sparked, because we are you know now 35 years removed from it. Um, it's possible to look back and think that this is quaint and this is kind of goofy and this is a little silly, a little earnest, a little heavy handed. But realizing that at the time it was to a certain extent, transgressive. Looking yeah. at the the reaction to it, you you were, you were right by the way. But the, the, I I was thinking when you said like, oh, you couldn't even sell a book. I was thinking, oh no, there were books, and I was trying to think. I was like, oh yeah, Chicken Hawk, and then I looked it up. It was like nineteen eighty three or something yeah. that that came out. Um, I so. do appreciate you trying to fact check me live. I, really, <laughs> I actually do. I genuinely appreciate that trying to keep me on my toes. Um, but um, no, like like that. I think that I think that is something that merits kind of praise. I do also. And I think this is an interesting one and it kind of feeds into the next question. Like, I will happily accept that like four Vietnam movies on on this list of 250 best movies of all time is probably a little bit indulgent. You can probably cut a couple of them. And, you know, I... <laughs> the Deer Hunter. Andrew, yes, yes, yes. Oh, well, thank you for cutting to my point there. Exactly. But like Andrew and I have talked in this podcast already about like Full Metal Jacket. And Andrew likes that movie a lot more than I do. But I admire the craft with which it's made. It is probably a better made movie than Platoon in terms of craft technique and that sort of stuff. Apocalypse Now, if you're going to argue that's a better made movie than Platoon, I will probably go for it just in terms of scale, historical importance and craft and technique. If you do try to say that Deer Hunter is a better movie than Platoon, I will just drop you from this call immediately. Um, but yeah, like I, I think I can understand maybe it not being on the 250. Really? Because you, you, feel, you feel that that's strongly about Deer Hunter? I do not care for the deer hunter. I, I also don't, don't care for the deer hunter. <laughs> I remember I was staying over at your place one time and I stayed up and just watched movies. And the deer hunter was one of the ones, um, along with Boys in the Hood and American History X, that made me cry. Like, I was. Um, Okay, because I remember watching Boys in the Hood with you, and I remember watching American History X. I don't remember Deer I Hunter. I must have I remember... stayed up and watched Deer Hunter, I yeah. think. Yeah. Darren's like, get that filth away from me. And he's like, oh, fine. When you go to sleep, I'll watch it. <laughs> Darren falling asleep, head resting on Andrew's shoulder um, as Andrew cries at the deer hunter. Um, sorry, I, I feel That's I feel a beautiful bad. image. That. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, again, listeners, feel free to get on your fan art about that. Um, but yes, yeah, so, like I, I would lean more towards yes, but I would also understand why. Oh, put, put us in um, Platoon. <laughs> um but yeah so that would be kind of my answer i'd lean towards yes but i I understand kind of hedging on and then second question joe would this be among your own personal favorite 250 movies ever made if i'm being honest no um if i'm thinking of if i ever wrote a list of 250 films that i'd be keen to watch again um it would not be honest uh i i admired a lot of uh aspects of it more than i enjoyed watching the film um i watched it with my wife and she thought it was 
very tough to watch. It's like brutal yes, yes. and it's relentless. Um, and as as I mentioned earlier, it, it doesn't it doesn't have an arc. Like there's, if you watch uh, other war movies, the structure would be like Charlie Sheen arrives with dust in his eyes and he sees body bags when he gets off the plane. But then like he does something really heroic and the last act and like saves the whole platoon and Oliver Stone very clearly says like no it's not like that you're not gonna Tom Berger pats him on the shoulder and says I was wrong about you, you yeah know, exactly you showed me the way yeah it's um, like an officer and a gentleman yeah. <laughs> love the idea of Charlie Sheen picking up Tom Berger just walking off into the distance um I'm fascinated that you imagined uh Sheen is the picker-upper and Berenger is the picky-uppie. <laughs> well, I mean, if the, if like this, if he's the hero of the movie, if he is the officer and the gentleman, I guess it kind of has to be. Yeah, yeah fair. You, you're, you're confusing a few relationships in Officer and Gentleman. <laughs> That's fair. Conflating <laughs> <laughs> a few characters. <laughs> yeah. like, what happens at the end of that movie is Richard Gere picks up Lou Gossett Jr. and walks off, right? That's that's what happens, right? I'm remembering correctly. Um, but Andrew, what about yourself? Would this be on your own personal 250? Probably not. I, I'd say more, more like like I um, before I'd seen it again the other night, I I I might have just kind of looking at the two fifty and trying to remember because I th- I I think I regarded it a lot stronger, the um like for a few times I watched this, um I'd say no now um for me and I would say a definite yes actually this is uh and it's it's a weird thing to say um. It's my favorite Vietnam movie because I love sticking on a Vietnam movie. It just makes me feel great about myself. But when I think about the Vietnam War on film, um, I think of this. Uh, when I want an emotional response, I think of this. Like I, I mentioned earlier, like I intellectually understand that like you know apocalypse now is much more accomplished filmmaking and it's you know much more abstract as you point out that could be set during any war like movies like full metal jacket and um you know apocalypse now feel like they are and again not that this isn't but they feel like they're profound meditations on human nature first and then using vietnam as a window into that whereas platoon feels like it's doing the inverse it feels like it's like trying to capture vietnam on film and extrapolate like from that, what that says about human nature. And part of me will always be that teenage boy who loves goofy, silly, overwrought earnestness and voiceover narration. Like, I think we talked on this podcast before. One of the big differences between myself and Andrew is that Andrew tends to be more of a Kubrick fan and I tend to be more of a Spielberg fan, where I I admire Kubrick as a craftsman. I think his movies are very, very well made but I don't emotionally respond to them uh, in that ineffable way that I do to a, to a kind of a Spielberg movie. And this, I emotionally respond to this movie. Uh, it gets me every time. It got me last night. Uh, and yes, even though I lo- listen to dialogue about two fathers wrestling inside of me, um, explaining the themes of the movie over shots of Charlie Sheen's face, I still find my eyes getting a little bit wet. Um, so yeah, no, this absolutely would be one of my top 250 movies of all time. I think Joe's right. It probably wouldn't be one that I would come back to. I hadn't watched it in a decade uh, before I watched it last night. I don't imagine I will watch it for another few years uh, afterwards. But it is a movie that, and again, I feel really tasteless saying this, but the, you know, I'd left the movie behind, but the movie was inside me. It would be with me always. Um, so that that's kind of how I feel about Platoon. Um, all right, yeah, then, and then only somebody who's seen Platoon will really understand what it's like to have seen Platoon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you have an obligation afterwards to kind of find the goodness. 
and a meaning to this life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You've got an obligation to watch it again, to teach others what we know, to try with what's left of our lives to to find a goodness and a meaning to Platoon. Um, but yes, and then third and final question, Joe. If listeners have not seen Platoon, would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it? Yeah, for sure. Especially if you're thinking of joining the army. I actually, if if I if one of my nephews or nieces or my daughter wanted to join the army, I would show them Platoon. Um, but even even if you're not thinking of joining the army, yes, do watch it. It's um, as you said, it's the fact that at the time it was the the only Vietnam movie made by an actual Vietnam veteran lent it a real air of authenticity. And I used the phrase bear witness earlier. And it does feel like that, like you're bearing witness to to the horror, to what Vietnam did to people and what it was like there. So, yeah. And then also, on a much more shallow note, a kind of a galaxy of stars, like present and future in the movie. So Sheen, Berenger, Defoe, Forrest Whitaker, Johnny Depp. Um, yeah. Tony many... Todd, Keith David. Um, yeah. Mark Your Moses, faces. as you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, all uh, of them. Um, even even Francesco Quinn as well, um, who had a who was, his career was got tragically short, but you know, kind of recognized from absolutely everywhere as well. Um, and I, I love that we John C. McGinley. We like again, somebody is screaming into the air like one of the twelve different other famous people that we have failed to mention so far. Johnny Drama. <laughs> Johnny Drama. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> Kevin a... Dillon. Yeah. How could we forget Kevin Dillon? Um, Bunny, baby, Bunny. Um, who famously boasted in, I love that like the press around the time, because this was his first big film role, he spent a lot of the press around the release of this movie talking about how he carefully learned how to bite a beer can. Slight spoiler for Platoon. Like he was like, yeah, I spent a lot of hours practicing that. You need to be careful because if you do it wrong, you can really mess up your lip. And I was like, wow, how many trips to the hospital did you make rehearsing that one take yeah. thing that you do? Did you ever manage to impress Mark Moses? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, it's so uh, it's so cruel that they cast Kevin Dillon in Entourage as the less famous brother in a pair of brother actors. <laughs> uh, well, Donnie, well, Donnie Wahlberg didn't agree to take the role, unfortunately. Uh, and Andrew, what about yourself? Would you recommend that listeners uh, pause? That was not that was not true. That was just me making an observation that this is based on Mark Wahlberg's life and career. So mapping the easiest possible one to one to that. But um, Andrew, what about yourself? Would you recommend that listeners pause the podcast and stream Entourage? Uh, sorry, Platoon. <laughs> um, yes, I would. I, 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 I think it's kind of important as Joe said to um, uh, kind of um, combat these ideas of um, kind of uh, imperialism and jingoism and kind of conquest. I um would I wouldn't discourage um uh say my own nephew from joining um our army because we're neutral and we perform peacekeeping roles but um and I I'd I'd be proud for them to go to go off and do that but 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 I think that the that's that's an anti-war kind of um sorry the 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 the, well, it's a very different proposition. Yeah, than, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the point of the movie is one that needs to kind of keep being made, especially with the kind of competition. Like, the, 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 that, that's, um, like, movies like, um, 
the Aaron Taylor Johnson uh, Godzilla was kind of like 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 they needed to make um, uh, I forget what it was was it the artillery. Um, yes, get their own separate subsection of that. Yeah, the Army Communication yeah. Corps get their own separate section of that. But I mean, the Transformer movies very famously are made with US military involvement. My favorite fact is that the US military refused to participate in the filming of the Avengers because it was never made clear during the Avengers that Captain America would report to the Pentagon. Like that was like, where do the superheroes fit in the chain of command? It's like, no, that's that's we can't green like this unless the superheroes are going to follow a clear chain of command uh, straight up to the executive office. Robert US Redford. military <laughs> put, put the villain in the in the um, in the Pentagon. Yeah. Well, I mean, to be fair, like Marvel have gotten better at playing ball. Like you'll notice that like Black Panther, for example, has like a heroic CIA agent who Ooh, works yeah. to stab- who works to stabilize the government of a resource rich uh, foreign power uh, rather than to destabilize it. And also he's obviously Captain Marvel was made with the Air Force as well and very much sold like a Top Gun. Um, like Captain Marvel is arguably very close to our generation's Top Gun. But that's a that's a conversation for another time. Sorry to cut you off there, Andrew. No, no, no. They, 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 just um, that I would recommend people watch it, and that that it 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 has a lot of impact as a movie. I did say that it didn't it didn't have as much impact this time around, but um, um, it's um, it it is it is something to behold. Yeah, um, and it is, and I mean, and I I watched it again on on the TV with the the sound system on and and the kind of music thing. I just kind of lost myself. I went back to Teenage Darren, which is um. I, and it's hard for me to tell whether that's like a reaction that I'm having to the movie now or to my nostalgic memory of like sitting up watching it on RT2 late at night uh, on my small little grainy television set uh, in my bedroom when I was 12 years old. Um, but it, it, it still does. And there, it, there are rare movies that have that level of kind of power for me. So, yeah, I, I would absolutely wholeheartedly recommend it. I will say it, it is a tough watch if you are somebody who is understandably squeamish or who doesn't like war movies um or who has a reaction to that sort of material on on film be aware that this is is not a light film uh in that sense so it will be quite heavy but yes if you if you are up for it i would wholeheartedly recommend it it is a deeply moving powerful unsettling film with that in mind then we'll segue neatly into the spoiler zone Spoiler zone. We do this thing more and more now, where we, <laughs> where we'll mostly like talk about the movie, like yeah. where where the spoiler zone will be like an hour and a half longer. <laughs> anyway, yeah, In, into sorry, into the sorry, uh, yeah, the, 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 the pre the pre spoiler. Like, let's yeah, just sorry. talk briefly about <laughs> about absolutely everything except anything in the. Well, we we, we haven't really talked about anything Darren in the opens movie. We a just book talk- of notes. Funny you should say that because. I have a whole section prepared. Let me turn to section 17BA. Okay, Joe, what what is Platoon about for you? For me? Well, actually, that's a good question because I think that for Oliver Stone, it's about, how to put this, how war puts a different perspective on things and um, spirituality is important. He mentions that a bit in the interviews, um, how hard it is to hold on to your soul uh, during war. Um, so it's, it's about that, about how war can change you and the obligation to leading a meaningful life. And then for me, it's about 
the futility and horror of war and holding a mirror up to it in a way that is not usually done. Um, so that's what I think it is. Oh, I should also mention, um, I think the one of the few other modern contemporary filmmakers, like as in still making films now, who's a veteran, is David Ayer. Um, unless I'm mistaken, I can't think of many others. Um, I love no. that you brought up Suicide Squad twice in this podcast. It's, <laughs> it, it really is. Suicide Squad is really our generation's platoon. <laughs> no, we don't talk about it. <laughs> um, and it would, must never be allowed to happen again. Uh, until we put that in front of it. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, it's Fury, actually, I was going to refer to. Yes. And Harsh Times as well, um, about the, the brutality of war and the effect it has. Um, that's the Christian Bale one about the veteran, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, good movie. Uh, worth seeing. And Fury is a good movie as well. Worth seeing, in my opinion. And they're also... Oh, I um, hated Fury. Oh, fair enough. So bad. The, 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 and especially um, Shia LaBeouf. Um, I thought he was... Pretty... Did he make you furious? No, like, I never kind of... I never bought into... Like, you're supposed to kind of... Um, I guess you're supposed to feel about him like you do about Charlie Sheen in this. That there is a oh, kind I of like more a, so a sort of an other... innocence about him. I think in the, the 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 performance is just he went into it like um Oh no, what, like what he, 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 he like cost himself it's like method, this is acting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he went full oh, like that method acting thing that, that show mentioned. We should be clear no, by the other way. young actor is definitely the, the modern Charlie Sheen in it. They, a, they also did the Star Lerman? Wars thing. Of <laughs> like kind of like different colors for like the Nazis. Uh, oh, you mean guns. with the lasers and like the the gunfires that are the, yeah. There was... um, you're thinking of Logan Lerman as the actor. You're thinking of, yeah. of Joe. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, no, sorry. I, and we should, by the way, be clear. Uh, when we we use the word method a lot in this podcast, I like that we waited until this boys want to clear this up. Um, the the actual method is radically different from what it means now when people use the term to be clear because I, I used to know somebody who got very upset whenever i would drop the term method acting into conversation in the sense in which we're using it so just to be clear we are not mentioning the stellar outler method uh we are mentioning whatever the hell actors now do and call it the method yeah actually um i think the price for raging bull gets greater with every new film so <laughs> Uh, like I love Raging Bull. Who doesn't? It's, it's phenomenal. And like Andrew doesn't. Um, he, well, no, actually, I liked Raging Bull. I, I but, just okay. kind of also hated it. I mean, it's great. It's it, it's 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 terrific. But it, it's just so kind of like scuzzy. Yeah, I guess. brutal. Yeah. And, yeah. and yeah, sorry. Um, but ever since Raging Bull, um, like there's a generation of actors. Or Tom Cruise said that Raging Bull made him want to. Um, pursue film acting and I think that because De Niro put on loads of weight for it and he got into and I got the chronology mixed up but he trained with boxers and he like became got into like professional heavyweight boxers shape for it and then like put on loads of weight and the result is like this powerhouse performance for the ages it led to lots of actors to this day putting on weight and making themselves look uglier well, assuming that's how you act yes yeah yeah, yeah. thinking that that's acting um the like the another 
like the comedy fat suit or the comedy putting on weight um, has fallen by the wayside in recent years. Um, so no more Nutty Professor or Big Mama's House or Norbit. Um, but instead, it's sure, the... Higher Christian Bale. Yeah, yeah it's the prestige no. actor putting on the weight. So it's the prestige fat suit now. And so anyway, so I, I think a lot of, whereas method acting used to be like what Brando used to do, you'd... you'd access the mind space yeah you'd access a a memory and or an emotion and you try to replicate it by feeling it and bringing authenticity to it um now method acting is i'm going to work at mcdonald's for a month even though everyone knows that it's just like ryan gosling working at mcdonald's so it's not the actual full experience and um i'm gonna like wear a fat suit and put on weight and look ugly and this will give authenticity to my performance and it's become thing it's become uh like a prop for acting and and it's also led to a misunderstanding of what good acting is so one of the most frequent and stupid complaints i see about acting is actor x is the same in every film therefore i don't like them and I hate that. And so it's like... Well, you, just you are a Schwarzenegger you, fan. Like, you you are yeah. the 250s res, like <laughs> resident Schwarzenegger fan. I feel like it would be hypocritical if you didn't disagree with that yeah, position. that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, Schwarzenegger, is, <laughs> Schwarzenegger <laughs> is quite the same in every film. But, like, even actors, like, really beloved actors who people think are excellent actors, like Jimmy Stewart or... Tom Hanks. Or Tom Hanks or... Tom Hanks Robert. had to go method for the um, play, playing... Um, what's it What's it called? Don't say Walt Disney. Don't, no, like, uh, Mr. Rogers. An oh, yeah, yeah. He had, to, <laughs> he, he, had nice. to, he had to drop all his terrible habits um, <laughs> and be a really nice guy. Like, Jared Leto isn't taking those ones, whereas, like... So I became like this really lovely person and I would like do favors and it actually made me feel like it's like it, 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 I, I, I think that it gets into kind of and I think Christian Bale has kind of admitted as much that part of it is to do with a kind of like a crisis of masculinity where where you're you're an actor. So it's a kind of like yes. a sort of like fay or kind of like a feminine sort of like profession. Like you're you're you know you're put, you're putting on clothes and pretending to be people, pretending to be a of... soldier instead of being a soldier. Like. Exactly, and and so that in order to kind of legitimize the um, their masculinity, that they kind of like undertake these kind of physical feats. I think like Christian Bale has kind of spoken about that. He said kind of like that. It, it, and he, he, I think he sees the kind of like the stupidity of it, but he understands that that's kind of what it was for him is to kind of like do something kind of um, uh, extreme, drastic, like to, 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 to Conventionally kind of masculine. how much of a man he was, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, yeah, there's this whole big thing, like a couple of years ago. Sorry, we will get back to Platoon. You gave us a nice way back to Platoon and we'll take it in a second. But like the one of the interesting things was a couple of years ago, you had this big thing about why are so many American superheroes played by British actors? Like, why is Superman British? Why is Batman Welsh? Um, that sort of stuff. Um, and one of the big things about it was that, well, actually, when we're hiring for franchises now, we're hiring younger actors and we're hiring actors who are not like movie stars and don't have movie star personas. And when it comes to that, British actors are just better trained 
because they learn acting at a younger age and they do it at school and they treat it as something that they take relatively seriously like a craft. So for somebody in a British school, it is the same to do speech and drama as it is to play rugby. Whereas for American actors, there is this perception, as Andrew said, and I know I know Christian Bale is Welsh, but like for American actors, there is this perception that acting is unmanly, that like you're out playing football if you're a real man. And so like... Again, I think that plays that into the idea. probably is that... what it's like in Wales, just not in England. <laughs> fair, fair point. Um, but like, but you do have that kind of like that sense that, yeah, a lot of American actors and particularly male actors, um, arguably, according to the articles that were written about this, don't take the craft seriously as a profession of itself and see it as, you know, playing pretend, playing make believe, something that is is not macho. And I do think that there is something in the sense of, well, well, we went into the wilderness for 14 days and we survived and we trained and we we ate our meals and we we had our combat exercises and we we carried our fake guns with us and we got mosquito bites and we're real men now. Like, I think is it um, there's a really great interview with um, and again, you mentioned Jack Black in Tropic Thunder, but with Ben Stiller. Like when he was talking about writing Tropic Thunder, like he said, one of his inspirations was meeting Oliver Stone, like because like this was the 80s and Stiller, like Stiller, I think, popped up in Empire of the Sun with Spielberg playing a POW the same year or the following year. And he said, like, I met with Oliver Stone and I remember thinking you're sending like a bunch of people whose job it is to play pretend make believe into the wilderness because you don't think they can play pretend make believe good enough for During your movie. A coup <laughs> During well. a coup d'etat. Yeah. Um and like I, uh, that Keep was the like one of the inspir- That's it exactly. Like I I do think there is something to what Andrew's saying there and what Joe's saying there in terms of like yeah, it's like no, but it's 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 serious and manly if like we can actually possibly kill each other while doing it. <laughs> um which is it's insane. But sorry, uh, back to back to um like platoon and back to the whole thing with the soldiers and stuff like that i like what i find remarkable about it is and this is kind of like it's something i want to kind of push back against what you said before the spoiler zone is this idea of the characters like the characters are i think very broadly drawn but i think it's interesting that the cast is so large and you get a very strong sense of who all these characters are and how they fit together very quickly like i i may not be able to remember the names of all the characters but i think i do have a little sense a little note of who each of them are uh in terms of even just small exchanges of dialogue so i know that tony todd's character is a drug addict but is has strong religious belief i know that whitaker's character is gentle and considerate i know that you know johnny depp's character is maybe a bit more sensitive than the other men around him for example and i feel the movie is very good at communicating those broad strokes things to me like I, I like from the outset the first shot of elias that you see is elias carrying his machine gun on his shoulders like a cross and then later on you have a moment where like john c mcginley's character says ah he's been in the nam three years and he thinks he's jesus freaking christ or whatever and then later on you have have manny kind of in 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 that pose um there's a lot of kind of uh, crucifixion stuff yeah. in in this movie because you see him first in 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 the kind of um, it feels like a kind of a crackdown, but but uh, but like um, in 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 that same kind of uh, cruciform pose, and then you find him like kind of um, uh, tied to a tree. 
um later on and you have like the it's um it's like it's like one like the 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 kind of last um day of christ the, the the like watching watching him like being chased through through the, um, oh, watching the Elias being chased through the wilderness Elias. with his hands outspread and yeah. kind of, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you even have a moment where, um, you know, where, where the, the other guy says, where Tom Berenger says, you know, he walks on water. And it's like, oh, I mean, like the politicians at home, not like uh, Jesus Christ, the other guy who famously walks on water. And I do love, by the way, that like this was a year before Willem Dafoe was cast as Jesus Christ in The Last Temptation of Christ, which I kind of love because you're watching it now and you're thinking, this is a little bit in jokey, isn't it, Mr. Stone? It's like, no, no, I got there first, Um, which I kind of I kind of like. But I mean, the fact that like even like when the opening credits are going, you get the wonderful little like radio signal where they're talking about like Wolf, are you having compass trouble again? And like that's literally the first thing that you learn about Lieutenant Wolf is that he has no idea what he's doing, and everybody knows that he has no idea what he's doing. And so I like to give the movie some credit in terms of being very didactic, being very heavy-handed, being very broad in terms of its characters. I do think that it does it makes sure that like when the chaos happens you have a sense of who these characters are and how they relate to one another. They're like the, None of them are entirely fully faceted, three-dimensional human beings. But I think that because there's so many of them and because so much is happening, that's less of a problem for me than it is for Joe, perhaps. Yes, it, you're right, and that is less of a problem uh, that's for you perfect. than it is for me. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, I, I touched on it earlier... Um, I I just wish Barnes had been drawn better and Elias as well. Um, there's a slight inconsistency as well in that Elias is shown shooting some Vietnamese soldiers and uh, he doesn't seem to bat an eyelid. And this is supposed to be the personification of good, the closest thing to Jesus in a platoon. Um, and then with Barnes, the, there's the hints of him as a kind of a Satan character in a scene towards the end when... Uh, well, he has literal physical scarring on his face to show that he's evil. Again, not particularly subtle. It's like, how do we show that his soul is ugly? It's like, oh, well, we will have him have very distinct physical scarring on his face. Yeah, and uh, have like fires of hell in his eyes when he's looking at Charlie Sheen, which literally happens um there's like an explosion and then he's looking down at charlie sheen and um fire is reflected in his eyes like his eyes are burning um so yeah i didn't care all that much for that kind of characterization um since we're in the spoiler zone i will say that yeah we're, we're in spoiler zone we're in a safe place yeah. when uh when barnes is killed um is really effective because it's again it upends your expectations a little bit in that if this was another kind of film he would be killed in uh in a way that would be supposedly or purportedly satisfying and there'd be vindication and justice at would last. exonerate taylor as well like it, you taylor wouldn't be shooting him as he or wouldn't kill him as he lay dying yeah he, yeah it would be anyone yeah. could have witnessed that as well right? yeah. Yeah. yeah um so but instead it's 
it's just really ugly and tragic and sad and empty uh, as vengeance often if not usually is um so i i really admired that that aspect of the film and interestingly the interpretation of of that scene uh, differs a little um i remember seeing an interview with charlie sheen and he said that he thought it was an act of mercy and maybe even an act of love that barnes if he survives and goes back to america he somebody in his condition couldn't really thrive yeah couldn't integrate in normal daily society was that line in full metal jacket about a different soldier um as long as everyone's throwing grenades at him for the rest of his life he'll be just fine and um so the sheen interpreted it as a mercy killing for this man who had lost his soul and there was no going back um i kind of interpreted it as um yeah he he wanted him dead for a long time ever since he ever since he shot Elias killed Elias yeah and so yeah I did I liked how that was played out I liked how it didn't it was quite courageous not to give the audience uh satisfaction and vindication um or an easy out yeah an easy out that's that's one of the things actually like about that because you mentioned earlier the, the like the line of dialogue that you really object to in the closing and I feel like I'm being overly defensive I will say it is purple prose it is very heavy handed and it is very much like step one of how not to write a script but like you mentioned the idea of like the two fathers wrestling inside him and the fact that like Elias does feel very paternal to him the bit where Elias kind of takes the stuff out of his bag he's like I'll carry your load for you just check with me next time first that sort of stuff and you know Elias being like yeah he might still be alive if he had a couple more days to learn something the fact that he does feel like he cares about his men but i i do the the barnes as father thing i think is not down to barnes being particularly paternal it's more that like taylor will carry the death of barnes with him for the rest of his days that like barnes you know in a certain existential sense kind of won the argument by forcing Taylor, not forcing but having taylor kill him taylor killing barnes means that some of Barnes is in Taylor, Taylor kind of mm-hmm. means that he's compromised in that way. And I thought that's kind of how I always kind of read it. It's the idea that, and again, like Barnes is again, not a subtle character, the scarring on his face to prove he's evil, the literal hellfire that you mentioned, but he does get like that little speech when he goes down and he visits the guys in the dope den. And he's like six of you guys, one of me who would ever know, but he talks about how from his point of view, what he's doing keeps the unit pure it keeps the men safe it keeps them secure and even elias when elias is sitting there staring up at the stars in like a beautiful little moment i completely forgotten having watched as a teenager like elias at least gives barnes the credit of saying no barnes believes entirely in what he's doing barnes like has an integrity to him in that barnes believes that what he's doing is for the greater good of the platoon or for himself or of America um, in a greater sense. And I think there is some of that there in the kind of push and pull that you have between Elias and Barnes. I, I think the movie is an Oliver Stone movie, so it's always going to side with Elias. Barnes is never going to get to be right. But I do think that the, the movie does at least acknowledge that Barnes has a perspective and believes in what he's doing, which I think is is something, perhaps. That is, um, that's a whole different... Very generous. Yeah, very generous. Like, the it, it's actually a huge debate 
and one for our times about what's the right level of conviction. I don't want young people to be apathetic, but I don't want them to be to have so much conviction as to carry out horrible acts, which is yes. what's happening. Young men are carrying out horrible acts because they have too much yes. conviction. Um, yes. So Barnes believing he's right and having conviction is, I think, a very generous gesture to Oliver Stone as a writer. Um, but um, like it's, he's compellingly or he's convincingly terrifying character. So from that point of view, he does work on screen. Um, but just, yeah, I, I would have loved a bit of nuance. But maybe okay. when I first saw it, so young, Oliver Stone had only made two films. I should have known better than to expect nuance. <laughs> nuance from Oliver Stone. Well, I mean, like, that, like, that's the thing, though. Like I look at... And again, this is one of the things where I think myself and Andrew have talked about this on the podcast before and how weird it is living in the times that we do live in. But like, I look at, say, like this, you know, and the voiceover at the end is very explicit. It's like, you know, we weren't fighting the enemy. We were fighting ourselves and the enemy was in us. And the idea that, you know, the movie suggests. And I think you, you sent on a, a tweet that was very interesting um, to read and kind of made the observation that like, one of the more surreal things about Vietnam is that it's it's Vietnam was a conflict where America went over to a foreign country, killed millions of millions of people and, and caused untold devastation to that country and then kind of went home and made movies about how terrible that made America feel about itself, uh, which is a flippant way of putting it. But there there is perhaps a kind of a sense in which, it you know, it's very fixated on America's experience of the war while negating or overlooking the the consequences for the people caught in the wake of what was actually happening. But the idea that in Platoon, the battle between Barnes and Elias is a battle within the American soul. And like looking at how America is now, um, and this is ironic because like I think I would have been more likely to, to kind of agree entirely with you like a decade ago or two decades ago, but looking at how America is now, I look at like Barnes's sheer conviction that he is right and his commitment to the belief that he is right and that his way of doing things is the only way of doing things and the only thing that stands between the platoon and madness outside. Damn any sense of decency. Damn any sense of morality. Damn any sense of consideration for his fellow man. And I think that is not an unnuanced portrayal of where the political discourse seems to be of where the divide seems to go and I, I think maybe I'm I'm incredibly cynical maybe I'm pessimistic maybe it has just been a really really long year but I do look at like the presentation of Barnes and Elias and I go Barnes doesn't seem too far removed from where we are right now unfortunately yeah I see that yeah okay, so um, yeah, broad strokes of political discourse are yeah. <laughs> tragically common. <laughs> yeah, that, that's fair. That's fair. It, it, but I mean, like, we are living in a very broad strokes age. Yeah, had Barnes been a real person and had he lived, he'd probably have, like, a Fox News show now. Yeah. He set up those bookshops. <laughs> uh, sorry. No. Um, very noble. Like, it, <laughs> it was, it was, yeah, very noble pursuit that he had. Um, I was mostly like, I started that and it's like, no. I can see <laughs> I, I could see your heart wasn't in it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, like 
Okay, so that's the kind of stuff that kind of jumps out at me. Um, is there anything else we talk about? Anything that we haven't discussed already with regards to Platoon, actually? This seems like it's going to be a very, like, weighted episode in terms of discussing everything before we hit the spoilers. I think so. The, is there anything? Samuel Barber is kind of like Adagio for strings. It's, um, it's uh, uh, beautifully used and very um, echoic. Um, yeah. That's the word, isn't it? I like that. Iconic, but for ears. Yes, I like it. I'm very... I, I, I like it when you drop that kind of on us. But yeah, no, it, no, it is. It's one of those those kind of scores that I cannot hear now without thinking of the movie. And it was amazing because I watched it last night and part of me, like my, my cynical critic part of my brain was like, is there any part of this movie that Oliver Stone didn't think if I play a dashi over strings over it, it will seem much more effective? Um, did he just have a button on the little editing booth where it's like play a dashi over strings now? But it works. It works remarkably well. And there's a moment where... Um, the character played by Johnny Depp, like they're playing Adagio for strings and he just gets shot and the music just stops, which I kind of love because it's like, oh, okay, we're actually playing. We built up the expectation of the music playing and then we're just going to kind of hit you with it as well. So, no, I, I do. I think that's really good. And actually to mention something I think Joe alluded to earlier on, actually, in terms of the film's battle sequences and the way in which it's shot, because um, I do think ebert's review of this is very good and it will be in the show notes i'll include it there ebert made a very interesting point about how the battle sequences in platoon are edited particularly towards the climax where he doesn't obey conventional say 180 degree rule he doesn't like situate the audience in a particular perspective during battle he cuts very quickly between angles that are very strange and very disorienting uh, uses shadow and darkness to catch you off guard and it's often very hard in the battle scenes to see, get a sense of where everything is relative to one another. And I think Ebert argued that that's part of what makes the movie so effective as, a, as an experience watching it. That it it's so visceral and it's so raw and the camera is such a part of the action. And it's it's moving and it's rotating and the perspective is shifting so dramatically. But what what about that? What do you think? What do you want to say to that, Joe, in terms of... Because you mentioned kind of wanted to talk about how it was shot. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's that famous uh, Truffaut quote that I'm going to butcher now that um, war is inherently cinematic. Um, and it's something that... And it's, a, it's an obstacle for uh, filmmakers making films about war. Because then if it's cinematic, it's exciting. And then it's not as tragic. It's not what war is actually like. Um, so... Yeah, this is one of the film's greatest strengths and it's probably born of um, Stone's first-hand experience, but the the battle scenes are really disorienting. You you kind of sometimes get a handle of where the fire is coming from and who they're shooting at, but not always. And then that disorients you and it feels authentic. It feels like probably what it was what it would be like to be in a firefight. Uh, sometimes you know they're shooting at you and where they are. Sometimes you don't. You're not sure where to shoot. And um, it was, it, even now, it still uh, stands out as quite distinct. Uh, Spielberg took it to another level with um, Saving Private Saving Ryan. Um, and then that brought in an era of shaky cam action, um, which led to incoherent action in even popcorn movies like Michael Bay one. And um, we're only just emerging from the shaky cam, incomprehensible action movie era. Like now, are we emerging? Uh, like I don't. I'm not entirely sure we are emerging. I, I watched like Shang Chi. I watched Cobra. I watched uh, sorry Snake Eyes. I've you know I watched kind of uh, what was the other one? 
um, Mortal Kombat. And it's like, no, we, I think we are still oh, in the I, discombobulated, shaky cam, um, frantic editing. <laughs> I was referring to like the Marvel movies, uh, while the action scenes don't have the invention of, say, like John Woo or Tsu Hark or yeah. kind of action scene, they're at least you can see what's going on and who they are. Um, that kind of, and it's not edited to within an inch of its life. Um, I think with the end of the Bourne uh, franchise and its imitators, yeah. and even like James Bond imitated Bourne just for one film, and then they're like, oh, no, sorry, no, no, come back, no, <laughs> you'll be able to see what's coming <laughs> up, what's going on. Um, so, yeah, sorry, it still exists, but it's not at the saturation level that it was, like um, host Private Ryan. But yeah, like to get back to the original thing you said, yeah, I love that. Stone captured the the chaos and confusion of a firefight, and in a way that was relatively uncommon at the time. It probably captures the kind of um, the um, like dirtiness of of uh, fights, though. Like I, I I think a lot of people felt with with Bourne, and I think um, a lot with 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 Casino Royale. That it felt like you know that he was in fights where he could actually like end up uh, um, getting hurt out of them, and the 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 kind of like people appreciated the kind of the the viscerality of it. I guess. Um, I do love that Andrew Andrew's perspective. Like I, we, I love that when we talk about this, it's like you know, no, no, no. The choking technique <laughs> in No Country for Old Men was just not convincing at all. Um, and you know, the fight sequences, like they they do seem properly grubby and dirty. We should point out, by the way, that apparently, yes, there were mountains of dirt on hand to make the soldiers uh, seem dirty uh, when they're making this. So between takes, they'd actually like dirty them up using actual um, dirt. One thing I want to note, actually, um, and again, this is like... They sell out for it... actual dirt. <laughs> Real dirt, proper dirt. None of that store-bought stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not, not fake dirt. But, um, not fake dirt. Uh, one of the things that I, I want to kind of point out, actually, which I, I do kind of... Like, it's... We mentioned, like, how this is different from something like... Um, something like Apocalypse Now or something like, um, you know, uh, the Stanley Kubrick one. Um, damn it. Full Metal Jacket. Um, and how, like, because it feels so grounded in the reality of Vietnam, I quite like um, Stone wrote about, um, Stone published his, his uh, one of his autobiographies uh, recently last year. Uh, I think it's it's Shine a Light, possibly, but it's basically... When he started when he was 18? No, not the, not the 14,000 page uh, version, but this is, sorry, this is um, Chasing the Light. Writing, directing, and surviving Platoon, Midnight Express, Scarface, Salvador, and the movie game by Oliver Stone. Um, and we'll include some excerpts in the show notes. But he talks about how when he was making Platoon, um, he... I, I kind of, like... I kind of love that this undermines the whole, oh no, it's it's a visceral experience. It captures the reality of war and the senselessness of it. His biggest touchstone was The Odyssey. Uh, was Homer's The Odyssey. Because um, he remembers... Which I've read! <laughs> And how does it relate? How does how does Platoon rank as an adaptation of the Odyssey, Joe? Uh, it's um, got a lot more Smokey Robinson songs than the, the Homer poem had. Yeah, some of those, uh, you know, I mean, it feels it takes some liberty. It's not at all faithful. Oh, um, Homer, I feel like, want, you know, Homer was just dingy. He didn't want to pay for like, the, <laughs> the, the rights to use the, the rights. music. Yeah. Uh, sorry, so Darren, go on. I... version where it sounded a little bit like Smokey Robinson, which you're like... 
That's yeah. just a cheap But you version. wouldn't really pick it yeah. up. Yeah. You like that's that's why it's a poem, not a song. He originally wanted to set it to Smokey Robinson music, but unfortunately, like the estate wouldn't pony up for it. Um but yeah, like I love the idea that like Oliver Stone, because he was talking about like he was being taught by Tim Leahy as professor at N- NYU. And he remembers sitting in class. And again, this is one of the things where I'm like, this is so corny. But teenage Darren, who is still a part of me and always will be, uh, kind of loves this. Uh, where, you know, Tim Lee, he would say, why? Why did Odysseus alone return to Penelope after nearly 20 years? Why him of all the other heroes who went off to Troy? Nine years on the beaches of Troy and nine moors returning to Ithaca. No one else in his crew made it home. Why? Why Odysseus? And after waiting a couple of minutes for answers and getting none from the crowd, he would reply, consciousness, banging the chalkboard, his voice carrying, because he had consciousness. That people is what kept him alive. That's the difference between each of us. How conscious can you remain in this hard world? How often do we forget because we, what? We want to sleep, lithe, forgetfulness. What are the lotus eaters about? Why are men turned into swine by Circe? Because they forgot they were men, they became beasts, but not Odysseus. Why does he order his men to tie him to the mast, no matter how much he plead to be released? Because... Doesn't put the wax in his ears. Because while his men stuff their ears with wax, he wants to hear the voices of these sirens. Knowledge. That's what Odysseus is after. And as corny, and as, you know, as much as you can mock the sincerity of that, I find that really moving watching platoon because it really does feel like stone believes and you know and again charlie is a very thinly veiled autobiographical take on stone's experience of vietnam so stone you know when stone is talking about charlie he's talking about himself but like i'm oh, sorry chris it's, it's chris taylor not charlie taylor, the letters taylor. that he wrote to traumatize his grandmother <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to like, star her at home. But like, <laughs> like everything is fine but, here, Grandma. It's not at all like you. you know, <laughs> do not worry. worry about yeah. me. I totally didn't murder my CO. It's absolutely yeah. fine. So but I like, skipped but bingo idea... to read this. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hell of a page turner. This would make a fantastic movie. Um, I can see a young Charlie Sheen in the lead role. But no, like I like the idea that like Stone argues that Taylor like retains some essence of his soul because he is because he he is introspective because he does write and he does think and unlike the other characters like O'Neill played by McGinley who just kind of go along with what's happening and the other soldiers who like bury their doubts deep inside themselves like you have the moment with the African-American soldiers uh with Preacher played by Tony Todd um with the character played by Forrest Whitaker like you have that moment where they kind of talk about it and they just kind of like say, don't stop thinking about it, get through it. But that like Taylor holds on to some of his humanity because he does question, he does think, he does write. He does try to remain conscious. Like the moment where he interrupts the rape uh, at the village, it's, it's, and again, this is the thing where Stone, like whatever criticisms you can make of Stone as a director later on, and they're all entirely valid. I think how Stone shoots that scene is is impressive even today because he doesn't show anything there, which is remarkable. Like that assault that is happening, you do not see any of the victimization happening there. It happens entirely off screen, which is probably the best way to present something like that. But you have Taylor interrupting it, helping the girl up and like just making the very simple argument. She's she's a human being. 
that's why you shouldn't do this because she's another person. She has essence and consciousness and she is real. And that again, like contrasted with say Bunny and, and Bunny, like Bunny's sheer lack of introspection. It's like, I don't think anything we did here is wrong. I just uh, like that nobody messes with you out here. That's what I like about it. But I find something very moving in, in that kind of like stone. And again, clearly working through his own experience of Vietnam, but saying like, what keeps you human in that situation is, is thinking, is reflecting, is, is looking inwards as much as outwards. So I, I know I, I maybe, maybe I'm being perhaps too generous to the movie, but I find something very affecting in, in that idea. Um, and that's maybe one of the reasons why I think platoon kind of sticks with me. Um, all right, then. Anything else we want to talk about? Anything we haven't discussed already? Anything jumping out at either Joe or Andrew? Sorry. Do the stupid stuff. Um, you mentioned this, uh, the, 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 the smoking. Also, the burning burning all the rice in the village uh, was the food rice. waste. Inappropriate food waste, yeah. yeah. Sorry, uh, well, Joe. Food waste is never appropriate. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I didn't know where to... Uh, it, it didn't come up organically. Uh... Unlike the rest of this podcast, which just rolled perfectly. I know, yeah, um, yeah. That's, <laughs> it's a tribute to Platoon that we don't have a classic three-act structure in this podcast. <laughs> But sorry. Yeah, it was interesting um, when I got into 70s movies and like as as a young film fan to just discover this world of 70s movies and late 60s movies. Um, and a couple of things that really stood out for me was, um, and very familiar things, is um, distrust of authority and... Uh, kind of breaking from conventional life and uh, Bonnie and Clyde was um, Easy Rider are like reactions to what was going on at the time. Uh, to Vietnam and Watergate. Yeah, Vietnam and Watergate. And then, Serpico. And, right? Yeah, Serpico. And then um, Little Big Man, which uh, is just a magnificent film, a huge impact on me as a teenager. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Uh, no, Dustin I Hoffman. I have not. Oh my god, that should be the next movie you watch. Um, it's uh, Dustin Hoffman is in it as um, somebody who leads this incredibly eventful life in the old west, and he like lives among the white people, and then he lives among the Native Americans, and then he fights in Little Bighorn, um, and Custer is in it, and it was. It was the first Western I saw in which the cowboys were the bad guys and in which the Darren's Googling it right now. No, I'm Googling something else, but... Um... And I could see parallels uh, between Little Big Man and the Vietnam War. So it's weird that... And then also, the other thing that stood out to me for um, American 1970s movies was big fat downer endings uh, downer endings are just like relentless and like i i've even i don't want to name the films in case naming them spoils but the... this is the spoiler zone for all movies joe okay so watch all watch easy rider before you watch yeah. every movie before you enter <laughs> the zone. well it's funny like there was like when i watch a 1970s film with my wife and even if it's kind of like a light entertaining film they often have a big fat downer ending at the end anyway and i think it's because they were losing a war at the time and because um 
like, well, you might be enjoying this like caper heist movie, um, but don't forget that people are dying in Vietnam and here is a beloved actor dying at the end of that movie. You just had a great time watching up until right now. <laughs> and yeah, it's uh, it's weird that echoed through that decade of 70s yeah. movies while only like a small handful of the movies were explicitly <laughs> about Vietnam. Um, so I don't know why I didn't get a chance to say that earlier. It just kind of uh, nope. slipped through the cracks. And and when you mention uh, Native Americans there, and you think you mentioned like Oliver Stone's kind of like recurring fascination with Native Americans in, in movies like Natural Born Killers and stuff like that. Two things that we should note about uh, this movie in question. You were Googling, um, like, what can we talk about for another 15 minutes? No, no, I was I was actually Googling to make sure that my memory was correct because I didn't want to say this without knowing for sure that it was correct. I didn't want to, like, libel Val Kilmer um, by talking about this. So, like, yeah, apparently uh, Oliver Stone originally wanted to cast a Native American actor uh, in the role of Elias, which is interesting. And apparently uh, he gave up on that after Val Kilmer decided to audition or insisted on auditioning for the role, playing the character as a Native American shaman. Uh, apparently that was a point at which Stone said, OK, this is not working for me. I'm going to go back to, to Willem Dafoe, uh, which I do find kind of interesting as well. And then finally, before we wrap up, uh, Joe mentioned it earlier, but I think it's it's worth actually quoting because I have the document here. Joe mentioned the Pentagon um, objecting to um objecting to the content of platoon and the actual letter here which is fascinating as well um describing the script as wholly unrealistic citing the language the treatment of vietnamese civilians and the fragging or killing of fellow officers no cooperation was possible in fact they put out an advisory in the philippines uh, against u.s troops participating in filming activity and here is the actual letter we have reviewed the script the platoon and have found the army cannot support it as written in its present form, the script presents an unfair and inaccurate view of the army. There are numerous problem areas in the script. They include the rape and murder of innocent Vietnamese villagers by U.S. soldiers, the cold-blooded murder of one U.S. soldier by another, rampant drug abuse, the stereotyping of black soldiers, and the portrayal of the majority of soldiers as illiterate delinquents. The entire script is rife with unrealistic and highly unfavorable depictions of American soldiers. In our opinion, the script basically creates an unbalanced portrayal by stereotyping black soldiers, showing rampant drug abuse, illiteracy, and concentrating action on brutality. Of course, we would be delighted if your company would consider screenplay revisions. A meeting can be arranged to go over the script if someone wishes to come to Washington, which I kind of like. I kind of love that the Pentagon's like, yeah, we, we'll help you fix this, but on, on our terms, we're not sending anybody to you. You got to come to us, which is like the, the wonderful... Uh, there's one thing the U.S. military has, it's transportation. <laughs> they can go anywhere in the world. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but no, no, the ultimate kind of power play there as well. Yeah. Um, all right, then. I think that about then wraps it up unless anything else I want to talk about. So before we, we kind of wrap up, um, what we normally do at the end podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something for listeners. So something that you're enjoying at the moment it could be something related to the movie, something unrelated to the movie. So to give Joe a chance to think about this, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. Um, I recommend a couple of things. I recommend the lighthouse. Um, with uh, the the Willem movie Dafoe. or the cinema? No, uh, the 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 movie with 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 Willem Dafoe. Well, I'll, I'll recommend the cinema as well. But um, uh, uh, and Robert Pattinson. It's um tremendous, uh, weird, um, looks terrific. Will kind of stay with you. 
um it's uh, it's um, it's just an, an an amazing piece of work another thing i'll i'll recommend something by um oliver stone and there may be kind of mixed opinions on this but i thought the untold history of the united states is a kind of like a, this a, is his a, documentary a, series yeah 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 it's a kind of a, a valuable source while 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 it might be kind of like criticized or disputed um for a, a, a lot of kind of perspectives that people aren't kind of um uh, given I, I i i think we've talked like a bit about about um um america dropping the bomb yeah in a way i i i i, I, I think the kind of um, the consensus way that the kind of the people have looked at that is that like oh it was terrible but it was necessary and just kind of trying to uh, explode that myth a little bit um, and other 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 things like that also talk like discovering kind of like how America could have gone differently in the in the twenty um, first century. Um, and Joe, what would you recommend for listeners? What are you enjoying at the moment, or what do you think they might enjoy? Sorry. Oh. All right. I think, <laughs> I think it was very presumptive of Oliver Stone to be saying, oh, great, look, we, we missed our shots with the 20th, 21st, that's where it's at. That's the new American century, baby. Listen to Putin is, is the primary note. But sorry, Joe. Yeah, um, so two TV shows I'm really enjoying at the moment. Um, one is Ted Lasso. I don't know if you've um, I am due to binge that for a podcast that will have been out several months already, but yes. Uh, it's... Yeah, it's just so charming. It just charmed the face off me. Um, it's the story of American soccer coach who's, or American football coach, actually, who's um, brought over to coach an English soccer team, um, a sport he doesn't know much about. And he's a fish out of water. Uh, but he, through his good-natured charm, um, starts to ingratiate himself with the people there one by one and ingratiate himself with the viewer. And it's just, yeah, it's very like Capra. And in season two, they're watching It's a Wonderful Life, like in case you didn't get that it was trying to be like Capra. And these kinds of shows can be mawkish and cloying and it walks the line. It really threads the needle, um, but it emerges as just completely charming and quite fun and winning um so yeah i just i just absolutely love it um it's kind of like a live action ned flanders series um, right down to the mustache right down to the mustache um, and i i like that the show like ted himself is deceptively smart um there's a kind of uh, there's a myth that people who are upbeat and outgoing um are naive and not savvy or smart, but they can be. And similarly, like content, like shows and books and music that's upbeat and open can have depth and something to say as well. So yeah, God, I just love it. Um, so that, and then a very different American show um, called The White Lotus. Um, I don't know if you guys watched it. Just wrapped it. up. Yeah, just wrapped up. I have up, not so. watched it. It's on my queue. It's... I. I have a lot of stuff to get through, including the American soccer coach show. Um, oh, okay. It's um so I'm about halfway through it and it's just delicious. It's just like it's like succession meets faulty towers. Um so it's about this uh really expensive resort uh, that takes Hawaii. ages to get to in Hawaii. Yeah, yeah like they, they mention 
like a flight and then an internal flight and then a boat to this resort and so they're stuck there and it's i love the structure of it every episode is one day in this week-long vacation for this like cohort of guests that arrived and each one has some storyline and you know you know that there is a you know that there is a death at the end uh, is this yeah they, like... uh, the first scene in it is like a coffin being loaded onto a plane and then it goes one week one week earlier and then fills you in um so yeah my favorite storyline in it is about this uh loved up glamorous uh couple on honeymoon and they're given like the wrong room when they arrive and it's utterly gorgeous like it's better than the last apartment i lived in um but it's not the room they wanted and that colors their entire vacation and like sets the wheels in motion for this like battle of wills between the manager and the husband and this new couple um so it's it's really fun and i i'm really enjoying i i will probably never own a helicopter so i'm really enjoying this new genre of tv shows of like super rich dysfunctional utterly miserable people who are not like me um it's really fun uh, mike white created it um who's, it did uh, yeah it, it was very uh... yeah mike white uh he of school of rock and brad status and chuck and buck and stuff like we should mention this was a pandemic bubble thing where basically it was very much like m night Shyamalan's old where apparently the studios were like look there's no way people can make movies in this environment but we need movies that we can release can you make movies in a pandemic bubble and the way to do that is to convince a bunch of famous people who are not doing anything anyway to go somewhere really nice presumably often with a beach lots of sun and lots of tropical weather with other famous people and to make something while there so the the white lotus was can you convince a bunch of famous people to go with you to hawaii for two months and make a tv show to step off their yachts yeah (laughs) (laughs) onto this island Uh, go away from this tropical island and go to this other tropical island um i should give a shout out to jennifer coolidge who gives career best performance yes better than stiffler's mom (laughs) yes it's a a very high bar um all right, then, and for myself, three quick recommendations to get us going. Because this is an Oliver Stone thing, I'm going to recommend Oliver Stone's Nixon, which was conspicuously missing from either Joe or Andrew's assessments of his career earlier in this episode. So I feel like it deserves shout out. Um, Anthony Hopkins doing Anthony Hopkins, not doing a Nixon impression and somehow coming to embody Nixon over the course of three hours. Also has a fantastic John C. McGinley performance because John C. McGinley is one of Stone's guys. If you haven't seen it, it is by far the superior Oliver Stone presidential movie, I would argue. Um, other recommendation. Would have been that argument. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> other other recommendation, uh, very quickly in terms of television shows, uh, because uh, the was it the Many Saints of Newark is coming out next month. Uh, I've been rewatching The Sopranos. Really enjoy that, but everybody else is. So I'm, I'm not going to say much more for about the Many Saints. I, 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 I don't think it's going to be good. Um, I don't know. Like this is the thing where I'm wondering. Like, could why this be the first something like that was so good by? <laughs> Like it's like 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 in the wire they have like um you know extra the final seasons. No, they they not even that. Like they have like additional extras. Like oh, the deleted scenes. Here's how here's how Bunk met uh, McNulty and oh, and, okay. and here is here's Prop Joe as a child. And um yeah, it's just, stop. I love don't, wire don't babies. Wire yeah, babies as a exactly. kid. Anyway. Uh, or season four of The Wire, um, but no, I, I do I, like uh, yeah. So, but I'm kind of I'm kind of curious about it. I I think it could go either way. I here is my thing. Here's a statement. I'm going to put a pin in it and date the podcast. Uh, 
I wonder if there's a good chance that this could be the, the next new entry that we cover. Like, it would be hilarious if after Andrew's suspicion, the many saints of Newark ended up being the next new entry that we cover. Sorry, uh, In the top or bottom 250? Ooh, well, I'm going to presume top. Um, like, even Space Jam 2 A New Legacy couldn't crack it's, the bottom 100. Vera like, Farmiga tends to kind of, like, get in in these sorts of things. She she, she was in uh, Mates's, uh, sorry, um, Bates' Motel yeah. as well. She's all over the pre... Like, is there a prequel to a beloved property? Can we get Vera Farmiga in there? Yes, we can. Um, the Conjuring, it's technically a prequel to Amityville, right? Right? Um, in that I think the sequel hook for the first one is they're going to Amityville. And then third and final recommendation, um, because it's now available on streaming in the US and I don't know when it's releasing in the UK or Ireland, so it might be topical, The Green Knight. Uh, I saw it uh, today, absolutely fell in love with it. It is a beautiful film, uh, wonderful, um, good old-fashioned kind of knight's adventure, deconstruction of the hero's journey. Uh, Deb Patel's fantastic. David Lowry is wonderful. It, it is vivid and rich, and I'm still processing it, uh, but I absolutely loved it. All right, then. So, Joe, where can we find you? What you doing online? If listeners want a bit more Joe in their lives, where you at? Uh, the Joe Griffin on Twitter, as in T-H-E, and then Joe Griffin on Twitter. Like the Suicide Squad. So, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, there, we don't there want was the air cut of Joe Griffin. We, we just want the Joe Griffin. Yeah, there, there was a Joe Griffin a while ago and nobody liked him. So we <laughs> stuck a the in front of it. So now everyone thinks he's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, Keep the the, it's dirtier. Um, <laughs> it's like, yeah, an opposite Parker. Yeah. Um, all right, then. And then, um, yeah, so ourselves, we're online at the 250, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever good podcasts are found. If you like us, feel free, because we have apparently had an uptick in listeners lately, so which is slightly daunting. Uh, maybe they'll have disappeared by the time we get to this episode. But if you if you are listening and you haven't already, please feel free to leave a review somewhere of us. It just helps point people towards the podcast and get more people listening, which is great as well. Oh, and um, can I suggest that you give it five stars? That's a hot take, Andrew. <laughs> yeah. I like it. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, if you like it tell everyone if you don't like it tell no one that's yeah. the deal that's yeah. the podcast yeah financially it costs you exactly the same amount to give five stars <laughs> out of three exactly. or four yeah I mean you might as well you've gone to the effort of loading the review page I mean you'd, well, you want to get the maximum stars there but yes we'll be back next week and look I'm really devastated that we, we couldn't fit in little big man that Joe recommended I was like, Joe heard me typing. That was me frantically trying to change the schedule to alter the future to make next week a better week. Unfortunately, next week we will not be covering Little Big Man. We will instead be celebrating the annual Batman Day by covering Catwoman, the 2004 movie starring Hale Berry, fresh off her Oscar win and hot into a raspberry win. Joining us for that discussion will be the fantastic Niall Glynn and the wonderful Billie Jean Doheny. So we look forward to joining, we look forward to hopefully you joining us then. Take care, guys. Thank you so much, Joe. Bye. Thank you, Joe.